<laughs> we interrupt our regular fanfare to bring you fanfare that surely, surely, every single listener out there recognizes. Yes, ladies and gentlemen of the G.I. Joe Berg podcast fandom, this is our Star Wars edition, or as we like to call it, G.I. Joe Berg, the expanded universe. My name is Fluke Star. No. Oh, God, are we doing this? <laughs> my name is Fluke Steve Killer, and I'm joined by my illustrious panel of Jedi's and Sith Lords. Going around the horn, introduce yourselves, boys. Damn it, I wanted to say something smart and witty. <laughs> Next time, Paul. Next time. Don't no shit, Sherlock. <laughs> Keep digging, Watson. Don't underestimate the power of my opinion today, Paul Osher. <laughs> nice. Don't underestimate the power of the Paul side. Yes. And he's joined by our uh, thirty companion. <laughs> Furry companion. Thirty companion. <laughs> I always thought. I always thought that C-3PO said thirty companion. I thought he was like being whimsical and making up uh, a you know a new word. <laughs> it's not third companion. It's his thirty companion. I did not have uh, very high fidelity speakers back when I was listening to scratchy uh, VHS copies of Return of the Jedi. But this is a very long-winded introduction to. Rob. Yeah, that's me, Robert. Darth, Darth Robert. <laughs> <laughs> and it wouldn't be complete without our brother from North America, Cujo Fett. Oh. Uh, not bad. <laughs> I am a hired gun, and uh, if the money's right, you know I'm Joe Bird. Mm-hmm. I want them brought back alive. No disintegrations. So, <laughs> this is our long-awaited reaction podcast. I mean, everyone's doing one, right? So, <laughs> the boys of G.I. Joburg thought we'd jump on board. This is going to be spoiler-laden, but we figure if you haven't seen this movie by now, are we talking about Star Wars Episode Seven: The Force Awakens? I mean, it's certainly made enough box office dollars for practically everyone on the planet to have seen it at least once. So, chances are... You have, <laughs> so nothing here is going to come as a, as a surprise or an unwelcome spoiler. I take it we've all seen this film, not so, gents. Just confirm, Star Wars is the one where there's like lightsabers and there's the guy with the breathing problem and the guy that goes, right? That is Star Wars, right? Within this last week, someone has sat me down and asked me, so what's the difference between Star Wars and Star Trek? Which I suppose yeah. is an interesting uh, layperson discussion to, to broach. I just said, Star Wars is <laughs> space fantasy and Star Trek is science fiction. But, you know, beyond that, you know, Star Wars caters to your more dogfight aerial space battles that yeah, are kind of inspi opera. inspired by Messerschmitts and Spitfires going head-to-head -head in World War II, whereas uh, your Star Trek is more of a naval battlefront. And that's just the broadest stroke. But, I mean, Star Wars deals with wizards and magic, and Star Trek deals with science. And exploration. Yes. Anyway, we're, <laughs> we're drifting, aren't we? <laughs> Episode 7. I mean, as of recording, it's done phenomenally uh, across the world. I mean, it's 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 blown episode one's uh, box office figures out of the water, I believe. Thank God. That's pretty big. 
I don't know. I'm kind of feeling the Phantom Menace right about now, but uh, what's the next move? I want to start this episode off by kind of gauging among the four of us how this film stacks up to its predecessors. On the spectrum of episodes one through six, where does episode seven find itself in your favor? Uh, hmm. <laughs> is it the top dog? You know, is it the flavor of the month? Has it usurped Star Wars? If I had to chime in with where I'd, I'd put seven, I feel that seven is great. I loved seven, but I find that it's not as strong without four, five, and six, but that's kind of the point of seven of it being number seven but if i had to put them in order i would say uh, empire i love empire i think empire is amazing it's a great film it's uh it's one of my favorite when i think of star wars i think of empire and new hope kind of mixed but i'd say empire is my favorite my second favorite is new hope or episode four and then i'd go seven and then i'd go jedi okay i just find that jedi in the original trilogy is the weakest for me personally and it has like some really cool moments, but yeah, compared to the first two, it just it does seem to lack something. It does seem to be more more kind of commercialized than four and five. And I find that even though seven is kind of super commercialized, I mean seven is definitely a product of our time, I'd say that seven did still try to focus a lot more on trying to just create links. Uh, to this universe, to the new universe, or to the future of Star Wars. I, I find that Jedi just felt like it was running out of steam in some regards. And this is having watched it, marathoned it on Friday night, which <laughs> was two days ago. So, you know, I'm speaking fresh here as well. Very good, very good. Kujo, does uh, Episode 7 beat Jedi in your favor? Um, It's not going to be easy for me to talk about this film, to be honest. Thematically, it's the worst film out of all six of the previous. Because it's a retread. Why is that? No, it goes deeper than that. Uh, I mean, it goes to the people who's in charge of the movie. But uh, I'll I'll sink my teeth into that later. I just think aesthetically, it was nice. But it it didn't hit me in the right way. So obviously, Empire is the, the movie that resonates and the force awakens uh the commercial that it was um is probably the worst of the films personally worse than the prequels Ooh, is, is, is is what i'm trying to establish in the the most simplistic terms you know terms. what insane as it may sound yes sir the prequels actually framed by uh this new movie really kind of shed a new light on me all right, Dark Lord yeah. Cujo. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. So, uh, in terms of our, our our own podcast spectrum, you're all the way on the sort of the naysayer bench. Contrasting that, I'd like to hear from Rob. Yeah. So for me, how I would rank all of them, I would go five, six, seven, four, one, two, three. So it's yeah, it's about in the middle, middle to top. Five, six, seven. So you're saying to me, Rob, that you liked The Force Awakens more than you liked Star Wars A New Hope. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, you wow. definitely do represent um, perhaps uh, the, the, the biggest promoter of this film among us <laughs> because I, I would actually put Force Awakens 
under the original trilogy in terms of my enjoyment. Maybe it's because I am a nostalgia junkie, uh, and that's the new, no matter how wonderful it is, seeing all of this good stuff wrapped up in one big Star Wars bow, the new can never usurp the nostalgia value that I attach and that enhances the original trilogy. There is no such nostalgia value enhancing the prequel trilogy, but that's a different debate altogether. There should be, because I was in the prime of my kind of movie-going life as a sort of a young teen when the prequels were 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 happening. But they, yeah, they kind of were raping the myth <laughs> for us all, unfortunately. I mean, midi-chlorians, what? I was going to say midi-chlorians as well. What so. My ranking is Star Wars A New Hope on top, followed by Empire. And, and I'm going to be kind of technical about where I put Episode 7, because it doesn't usurp the theatrical release of Return of the Jedi, but it does usurp the special edition release of Return of the Jedi. The theatrical release of Return of the Jedi was, for me, a perfect movie. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be a Jedi uh, promoter to the death because I think it 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 draws every, all the all the conclusions quite neatly, albeit quite simplistically, and also with a a little bit of like kid friendly touch, i.e. the Ewoks. But it's a very elegant way to close out the the movies. Um, the interplay between between Darth and the Emperor and Luke is probably dramatically, uh, you know, it, it's an unsurpassable dramatic high point for me uh there's a lot going on in that sort of triple play of of uh, of uh, of conflict and it's hey, difficult hey. difficult to recreate that with characters that i feel less of a connection to and i know that they're new and they haven't really had time to establish themselves but i'm just saying jedi in its unadulterated theatrical lease format is perfection and uh i would rank episode seven beneath it uh, the special edition Jedi pisses me off. Like, I can't watch it. I get angry. I want to throw the DVD or Blu-ray out of the window Word. because of that fucking stupid music. The, the to topping and tailing it. Like, <laughs> Jabba's Palace, that, like, Jedi rocks or whatever it is, that stupid, jazzy, uh, awful CG character. Wow, wow, oh, it's so bad. It makes me livid because the old like funk track was so badass and so like and so moody. Billy D. Williams like incognito and Boba Fett caressing his rifle. Like you can just smell the defecation and death <laughs> in that palace. And uh, you know, in hindsight, that's become the, the strength of that film. Like Jabba's oh. palace creeps the shit out of me it scared oh, wow. it scared me as a child and now seeing it as an adult i'm like this is oh this is the dark underbelly of this movie anyone who bemoans the ewoks just needs to rewatch like how the movie started and yeah your more more grotesque kind of persuasions will be tickled by that that, Allow that me sequence to, to drop a little bit of context on uh, java's palace uh, is actually owned by uh, Bomar monks. So it was a monastery before Jabba took it over. So oh, you yeah. get all those round arches and whatnot. And the Bomar monks who are now like disembodied brains in like you, in a protein bath. Those spider things, those are the Bomar monks who kind that's, of been that's enlightened. That's a beautiful expanded universe. Are you feeling it, Robert? 
Is it expanded universe? Well, yeah. Well, it is, this... isn't it? I, I, because I mean, they're not established in the film. You kind of see like one of them walking along, and it's like one alien it's amongst just... others. You wouldn't. Java's palace know it. is so rich. Mm. Yeah, love it. Sorry about that. Derail. <laughs> it's like everyone's just hanging out there on the off chance that they can see someone get eaten by a rancor. <laughs> I think like people are sleeping in their bar stool. And, and just like pissing on the walls, <laughs> just like hanging out. Like if we if we are here long enough, somebody's gonna get thrown into the rancor pit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean it's if Disney recreates Jabba's palace that you can walk around, then all is forgiven. Uh, well, um, <clears throat> I think I think that's kind of plotted our our place in this uh, in this ranking of episode seven. So we got Cujo all the way at the bottom, like. Not really feeling this movie. Rob's loving it more than the original trilogy for the most part. I like uh, the adversarial angle with Robert on the yeah, show. Yeah, so. yeah. I hope you guys butt heads. But does anyone want to get into how they experienced Episode 7? Anyone got any cool stories surrounding uh, when you got to see it? What formats? How many times you saw it? Okay, well, in South Africa, we got, we got it a little bit early. We got it earlier than the U.S. release. I think we got it on, I think the official release for the film was the 16th. Yeah, so what happened is uh, I had been wanting to get tickets for this film like crazy, and then they opened up the, the booking, so I, I managed to pre-order. And it was cool because I think it was me and like eight other guys who managed to pre-order uh, when I did my pre-order or my pre-booking, uh, which was, uh, it was cool. It was like, oh, look, eight other like hardcore fans, well, when I say hardcore fans, just invested fans. And then, uh, yeah, and then I think it was about two months that I had to wait uh, before the film came out. And, yeah, I was super amped. I mean, I'd planned it down, uh, you know, like I had sorted it out to have friends, uh, some friends with me, uh, like friends of mine go in and we went and we did the whole Star Wars thing. And then, well, we got there and then they informed us that the 3D was broken. So we were kind of really happy about that because I didn't really want to watch it in 3D. Uh, and we were going to get like a discount and on our, uh, on our like drinks and popcorn. So I was really excited about that. And then I went to go and get our drinks and our popcorn and they were like, no, no, they fixed the air conditioning. So the 3d and everything's going to be fine. So we we're like, fuck anyway. So I got myself <laughs> a cherry slush puppy and I went in there and, you know, sat through the, you know, the incompetence of state clinical cinemas. Uh, you know, having a <laughs> Deadpool trailer and other trailers, like, you know, with the lights on. And then everything cut to black. And then we got to finally watch Star Wars. And when that crawl starts, you just feel it. It hits you. It's like a supersonic explosion. Just boom. Luke Skywalker is missing. Yes. You know, hide and seek champions since 1983. <laughs> and, and I got to say, it was just it was just a really amazing film. Uh, it was a real roller coaster ride for me. Um, one or two things that irritate me, and I'm sorry to sound like like some kind of Star Wars hipster. Or well, let's get into like, that later, right? Yeah. Highs and lows. Cool. Yeah, but I mean, I, I won't get in. I mean, I'm not talking about the film uh, in this regard. I'm just talking about some things in the cinema. Um, when certain things happen, and like you know, groups of girls go, oh, and then like guys go, Ooh, I'm like, I just sat there, and I was just like, you know, you guys all fucking poses. Because they were, but <laughs> yeah. So but it was anyway, quite a spirited was, uh, viewing, was it? Yeah, like I mean, on one hand, I was like really excited that people were really excited about the film and they were like vocal about it. 
but it's just some of the things that people were excited about. I could just tell that they were like kind of, um, I don't want to say new fans, but kind of uh, adopters. You know, uh, Star Wars adopters. So it's not. Oh, fair to say but Paul, we, we are all Star Wars adopters. None of us no, were we around are. in '77. No, that's true. But I mean, the thing is, as well, we've been in bed with Star Wars for a long enough time for us to be able to say, you know, we're going steady. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> with them, it's a brief flirtation. You know what I mean? And then I watched it a second time a week after, and I got to say, when I watched it a second time, it was a lot better. It was a much better experience. Uh, the 3D was handled badly. When I went, watched it, um, the contrast was terrible. Just the sound wasn't as good as it can be or could have been. And my second viewing was much better. It was more, I just felt it more. And that was just Mishi and myself who went to go and watch it, or Mishi and I who went to go and watch it. So so that was my episode seven experience. Uh, I had uh, a buddy of mine book or block book 15 tickets, which we then set about divvying out on a, on a WhatsApp group called The Force Awakens. And uh, it, it was wonderful seeing it with uh, people who actually cared People who I used to dress up uh, as a child and play you know, Star Wars with, we would role play it. Uh, you know, one of one of my friends who was a, a childhood friend who lived around the corner, she would be Princess Leia. I'd be Han or Luke. Another buddy of mine would be Chewbacca. Like, we would be the crew of the Millennium Falcon, which was actually just a fort built in the living room. But, you know, the, <laughs> it was a nice reunion of kind of Star Wars friends, new and old. There were also people that kind of moved in my circles back in high school. And then people that I'd only discovered later as an adult in the kind of working circles, you get started talking about Star Wars and you're like, shit, you know a lot about this stuff. So do I. Let's be friends. <laughs> so, yeah, there were, there were many, many, uh, Quotable quotes being made, and uh, <clears throat> maybe even a round or two of Star Wars Trivial Pursuit uh, in the air. But some of us even dressed up, and I do have a, a replica lightsaber that lights up, you know, the really heavy, cool ones that oh, sort of make that sound effect as you clash them. And I put on a Jedi robe and ran through the, the cinema, flinging my lightsaber about, just kind of hyping people up. And uh, and it worked. <laughs> it was very rewarding, like running down to the front of the cinema, twirling a lightsaber and saying, "Come on!" and everyone going, "Yeah!" So it was an exciting screening for me. I, I definitely, I, I'm glad I rose to the occasion, and I'm glad the occasion sort of met me halfway. Uh, it was the IMAX screen, which is a good distance outside of Cape Town, but certainly worth the trip because it was probably the the most optimal way to experience this film. Uh, IMAX 3D, not only is the visual optimized and, and crystal clear, and the 3D for that matter, but the sound is so damn good. And that's always been like Star Wars's calling card. The mm. sound design is perfection. And very, I mean, high, very, very high production values. I mean, they won Oscars for this shit. Ben Burt and his team are like pioneers, man. They are industry leaders. So you can always expect an impressive onslaught of sound. And you need to see it in a, a cinema that does it justice. So, you know, Burt and Williams were blasting out of those speakers and just kind of Wrapping me up in the love. I uh, was a very happy boy. And it, it, it's, um, 
it took me a while to kind of come back to reality. Like for a good long while, I was kind of high on Star Wars, and only when the pace dropped uh, in the middle of the film, which is my biggest criticism, to be honest, uh, was I able to like, whew, okay, the the ride has kind of reached its its kind of second act lull. We're chugging towards another big dip, uh, but I can now catch my breath. So it, it was it was it was. A pretty immersive experience, and uh, I mean, I was uh, I was a little bit like wobbly afterwards. I must say, it, it was it was a ride. It was a Disney World roller coaster. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> How about you, Kujo? What was your first blushing with uh, Episode Seven? Well, is Robert still on standby? Because I want to hear the uh, okay. South African uh, perspective. You want to hear the light side of the Force? I do. Before I, uh, I want to know my opponents. <laughs> All right. Well then, uh, Ray, chime in. My first experience with Star Wars, um, my bosses kind of knew quite early on when the bookings for Star Wars opened, so they booked us all to go. So I went with my comic shop people, and we all went and watched the movie. On the Dead opened on the 16th of December at 8 p.m. at the IMAX, the same theater that Steven went to. Um, <laughs> and I... I'm glad we went so early because I was worried that working at a comic book shop, you would end up with people coming in and having seen it and spoiling Spoilers. it. Spoilers, yeah. So I'm very glad that we got to see it as soon as possible, even though the Which is something was I can relate holiday. to Rob on, sorry, if I can just say. Yeah. Something I can relate to. <laughs> no, no, definitely. I mean, we, you know, if you're working in retail, the chances of someone coming in and saying, oh, Han Solo dies, you know, you, that ruins it. Yeah. <laughs> so I saw it on that day. It was amazing. I had a good experience with, with my, my work colleagues. Um, and then on the Friday, I, I went with Stephen in the evening with his, with his group to see it. But, pre, but before that, in the morning, I saw it two more times. So on that Friday, <laughs> I saw it three times. <laughs> this guy really likes the movie. <laughs> <laughs> and I saw it one more time on Christmas Eve with my sister, also again in IMAX. So I've seen it three oh, times cool. in IMAX, twice in 2D, and definitely the IMAX experience, as Stephen has um, promoted it, is is definitely the ideal way to watch it. Oh yeah, I went back for a second viewing at the IMAX with my brother-in-law on New mm. Year's Day. What better way to spend the first day of 2016 than by watching? Definitely. Episode 7. Of course, Cujo would not agree with us. <laughs> Give us your bile. How well, did you no, experience no, I, Episode 7 for the first time, bud? I'm not going to attack this film. I, I'm just going to lay out Damn what it. it revealed to me. No, uh, I watched it a uh, night of release in IMAX. I wasn't going to, but it just so happened that I wasn't sleeping that night, and there was like a 1.30 showing in the morning, and I was like, okay, I'll do it. So I went to the IMAX. So it was dreamlike because uh, I had I had enjoyed some some mango uh, a bit earlier before the film. So um, it was it, I was in a galaxy far far away uh, for sure. And um, seeing it at one in the morning, my God, man! Uh-huh. Yeah, that's kind of cool actually. Well, I was with some true believers. I mean, there were some people in there that were pretty hyped. I did watch it one time after after I kind of sorted out maybe my thoughts on the film and hearing other people's opinions. Um, just to kind of go in to get, to get one more look at it. And, and I'll probably take in one more before it leaves IMAX. So, 
that'll be my history with this film. There is, of course, uh, a 4D version floating around Cape Town cinemas uh, at the waterfront, for instance, where I believe yes. the, the seat shakes and there's some kind of atmosphere they pump in. Yes, it's, it's quite an experience. My, my colleague actually went to go see it in, in that version, 4DX. Well, shall and... we, Rob? Is it, is it done yet? <laughs> Has it left cinemas yet? Well, I don't know, but I, but I know he had a mixed experience with it in 4D because not only do they combine the vibrating seats, I think, and the movement, as well as sort of misting um, and smoke, and they also do strobing, which he found was a little bit overused in certain scenes where it kind of forced you to close your eyes. Oh, my God. You know, it like, really is a Disney ride. Yeah, literally, like you put into a ride. <laughs> I would like to know yeah. who hugs you when people are getting hugged. <laughs> like when when Poe is hugging people, who's hugging you? That's that's a question worth posing. <laughs> That'd be interesting if they could incorporate that. Indeed, You're who, like, who gets the who gets the Carrie Fisher hug? <laughs> exactly, it's a varied experience depending on staff. <laughs> Yeah. So he, so overall, he, he he enjoyed the experience, but they kind of got a bit overzealous in the way that they programmed the ride, as it were. Like you said, if if it was a little bit more subtle in in places, it might work a lot better. But they kind of go overboard sometimes, especially with the strobe. Mm hmm. Yeah. I can't imagine being inside a dark cinema and having a strobe go off. Could there be anything more distracting? Yeah, that's the thing. He said the try. A lot of the things are immersive, but that definitely takes you out of the experience. And that's kind of cheap, man. There's no like, there's no less sophisticated like disco light than a strobe. It's just a flash that's going rapidly. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, enjoy your epilepsy, kids. Mm. <laughs> exactly. No, I'm sure they like, you know, there's a warning yeah. before. Don't pay you 140 bucks uh, unless you know you're not epileptic. Guys, let's get into the meat of this discussion. It wouldn't be a G.I. Joburg podcast if we didn't discuss highs and lows. And we're going to get very, very specific. So going around the room or the virtual penthouse, <laughs> whatever you want to call it. Uh, <laughs> highs and lows, boys. Let's, let's, let's start with the high points. I mean, what did you love about Star Wars Episode 7? Rob, I'm going to start with you because you are yeah. you have watched it the greatest <laughs> multitude of times, and you've ranked it above A New Hope. So I mean, definitely, I almost ranked it above uh, Return of the Jedi, but then I knew how much you loved it, and I didn't want to disappoint you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you were full of spoilers with your ranking. Uh, let's just remind the listeners: you wanted to rank the films in order from best to worst. Episode 5, Empire Strikes Back. Episode 6, Return of the Jedi. Episode 7, Force Awakens. And then Episode 4, A New Hope. Yeah. So that's actually at the bottom of the pile. And that's quite curious because 
you've put seven above four and seven in many respects in terms of uh, thematics, uh, narrative and plot pieces is a retread of four. Yeah, it's kind of like a soft reboot, essentially, of the Star Wars franchise. Kind of like how Jurassic World was a soft reboot as well for the Jurassic franchise. Mm-hmm. Jurassic Park franchise, it kind of hit the same kind of points as it went through. Mm. Same high But notes. still, I mean, yeah. I find it very satisfying, um, the whole movie. It was a very fun, action-packed, nostalgic film with actual emotional new characters who, I, who I, I'm, I'm genuinely looking forward to seeing develop. But um, high points. Okay, my favorite sequence in the film is the Millennium Falcon sequence. It's, it's amazing. It's hard like to beat. It definitely is because it's just so action-packed and it feels it feels new and you get to see these characters interacting with the, this really old ship. Um, so that that's a definite high point. The introduction of Rey I thought was was quite spectacular and also it, it her theme is really nice. Her the, the John Williams theme is very it, it's mm. it's I don't know I I really like the theme for her. It had like a childlike mm. naivety to it because. I mean, it seems she seems so small and frail and and childlike in this really robust world. I mean, she's badass, but she's got like a kind of a I don't know ethereal naivety adjective, adjective, adjective. But like the theme reflects that, which is quite sweet. Yeah, definitely. And certainly, in a way that like with Jake Lloyd as Anakin Skywalker that really was a child's theme this is like a kind of a simple beginning to a very complex real character yeah definitely uh, yeah sorry i'm jumping all over your points continue Robbie. <laughs> i found the reunion reunion of leia and han very touching it's just so cool to see them together and them interacting the way that you kind of expect them to after so many years you kind of still feel that relationship like from the original movies i think i in would i say i enjoyed han's death i think it was kind of a high point because <laughs> it was necessary and expected and i enjoyed the beautiful foreboding setup to it as well with kind of the, the light and mm. the dark and the way that it was filmed was, was very very intense and i think the way that it was filmed also kind of softened the blow in a way as well at least that's the feeling I, I got. Um, and also I like that in Episode 7 they develop the villain more than they did in A New Hope. Because in A New Hope, essentially, Darth Vader was just the bad guy in a black suit. You knew absolutely nothing about him. But by the end of this movie, you, you do know a lot about Kylo Ren, you know, a.k.a. Ben Solo. And mm-hmm. I thought that, that was quite cool that you actually know a lot about him. You can see he's developing. He's not fully a villain yet. And you kind of see him... I was struggling with being drawn back to the life or wanting to be really evil. <laughs> What's the matter, emo kid? It's definitely a fresh approach. I mean, that was Star Wars' thing. Like, the bad guys were really bad, and the good guys were really good. Like, you could easily differentiate who was on what side of the fence. Um, not so with Ky- really Kylo Ren. Okay, I was gonna say Han is is your your exception, but he has the the best arc as a result because he starts out as a kind of a gray area kind of guy who will kill in cold blood because you know he's just a cowboy, but he becomes very 
clearly good. You know, he will sacrifice himself for his friends. Not only, not only, well, he basically sacrifices himself for his friends in every single one of those movies. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, look, he's, <laughs> I don't think there's any disputing that Han Solo is a good guy. But someone with, well, like, someone like Kylo Ren, he's not a faceless baddie. You know, he makes a point of taking that helmet off. Uh, you know, totally just throwing away perhaps a bad guy, uh, a bad guy trope of being a faceless, uh, Machiavellian like henchman kind of bad guy. I mean, he, he has a face, he has a personality, he has a backstory, and yeah, his is a journey of like trying to resist the temptation of the light, which yeah, it's an interesting like. You know, turning on on its head of like the, the the previous theme of Star Wars. Yeah, I think. So. Which is trying to resist the allure of the dark. I have a hard time uh, grasping the resisting the light. Uh, the, the resisting the dark is much more intriguing to me, but but that's neither here nor there. I mean, it just doesn't make sense to me. That Kylo can want to be evil. <laughs> yeah, when you put it in those terms, it seems like, why would anyone want to be, like, inherently evil? Why would they want to be like Darth Vader? It, it, well, sh shall, I, shall I drop a high point? I, I, I kind of want to almost answer my own question first. Please. And that's kind of like what the First Order are idolizing. They are like super right-wing offshoots of what was the Empire. You know, after we're assuming that after the Battle of Endor and similar battles staged around the galaxy, more systems fell in line with the Rebel Alliance, more systems fell out of favor with the Empire to a point where they were at a stalemate. And so the Empire kind of retreated into this black hole of, of like biding its time and basically festering into what is the new order of super ultra like true believer you know neo-nazi is that like is, hardcore guys is that a logical leap or are you speaking from the uh, new expanded i think it's from the new expanded right. <laughs> but it's kind of hearsay I've, I've i've heard it via 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 the interwebs right and that's princess leia oh sorry uh, Leia Organa, General Leia, General Leia Organa, <laughs> formed the resistance to meet this new th threat. So they're not officially sanctioned on either side. The resistance has its supporters. The First Order has its supporters. But they've never had open conflict until now. That's, I think, where we find ourselves uh, in Episode 7. Okay. It's been, it's been like a cold war brewing on either side of the, 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 the divide as the New Republic sort of gains momentum. Uh, you were going to say something, though, Kujo. Sorry I cut you off, man. I'm just trying to establish this world for my no own... No worries, brother. <laughs> ...sanity, I guess. Um, no, I, I believe we're doing high points, yeah? Do it, if you got some. <laughs> um, I can find something. I, I liked that one planet with the asteroid belt around it at the end. That was cool. When the ship flies by, you can see the shadow in the rocks or ice, whatever it may be. Aside from that... There was some uh, there was some design aesthetics to the uh, ships and whatnot that uh, that felt familiar. I liked the callbacks, and, and you're right the uh, the Millennium Falcon dancing off the desert uh, floor that that was that was pretty uh, captivating. So uh, there was some there was some good action. 
I'll give it that. Seconded from me, man. Uh, I'm, <laughs> you know, the reason I I collect toys is probably all because of Star Wars, really, and what I always wanted to do more than actually play with the the human characters or aliens or any of the individual figures was put them in vehicles and fly them around. Uh, I think my first vehicle ever was a Star Wars mini rig from Empire Strikes Back. It was a little laser tank, and that was the coolest thing. I used to put a G.I. Joe in the cockpit and roll that little tank around. I mean, it was just – that was my play pattern. Uh, and then it only ever expanded out from that as I got more toys, as I got more Star Wars vehicles, for instance. Uh, I was able to sort of just have those battles. And so to see X-Wings and TIE Fighters going head-to-head again – was Ooh, some of those dog fights, brother. Oh, the biggest thrill of this film, bar none. Nothing really approached that ecstasy of just seeing these familiar crafts doing what. I mean, George Lucas very openly says the reason he made Star Wars in the first place was to have space battles that were exciting and gripping and had movement I mean, and pace. You know, Lucas was was working on a much deeper level. That's just what he said. Well, (laughs) I I do believe that the ethics and the core philosophies and the mythologies of Star Wars sprang from that. But, like, his first impulse as a filmmaker – because, I mean, let's face it, he he made a car car movie called American Graffiti just before – Don't forget his first film, brother. uh, THX – what is it? 1138? Uh, Indeed. Well, okay, I, that that had pacing problems for sure. Like, I think maybe Star Wars was a reaction out of that. Like, let's make science fiction fast-paced and fun and explosive and, like, a thrill ride. And so, yeah, he, I mean, he just wanted to make pod racing, man. Nice. <laughs> that's, all, that's all he's ever wanted to do. Just, like, like fast shit hot rods. Shit hot hot rods, that one. <laughs> I think that's definitely how he sold Star Wars. I mean, when when he was pitching it, I think he definitely sold epic space battles. That was, that was. And Star Wars Episode Seven: The Force Awakens had mm. that. So even if the film achieved nothing else, I would have enjoyed it for the fact that, like, Tie Fighters were made protagonists. They weren't just targets to be exploded or have cockpit shots of like faceless minions, you know, at the controls. No. It was, it was our 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 heroes flung into the cockpit of a Tie Fighter and made to you know have a daring escape from the enemy Star Destroyer. I mean, like it was so much fun to see these familiar ships uh, being presented to you in fresh ways, given new Star Wars material to gush about, and they did some fun things cinematically that I hadn't seen before as well. Can anyone remember? Uh, the, 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 uh, First Order raid on, uh, Naz Kanata's, uh, homeworld, whatever that was called. Whatever that was called. Whatever it was called. <laughs> I wrote it down somewhere, but, uh, man, my scroll right now is ridiculous. Oh, uh, yeah. The, the, the battle on Takodana, I believe it's called. Mm, tacos. Takadana, which is Mazkanada's Mazkanada's where her castle was. Anyway, that battle sequence had a pretty breathtaking and rather unusual shot 
for a Star Wars film. It had a sun, a setting sun. We've seen that before, but it had two TIE fighters kind of flying out of the sun through the heat haze. It was very like, like Francis Ford Coppola Apocalypse Now kind of like helicopters coming out of the sun. Yeah, those. It was. Uh, Beautiful. Oh, me the of, cinematography uh, of that was amazing. It reminded me of Japanese Euro fighters coming in. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, like Empire of the Sun yeah. or Toro, Toro, yeah, Toro. Exactly that film. <laughs> or uh, uh, Pearl Harbor. I mean, if you want to pick a more recent oh, no, example. That was, that was beautiful framing, no question. Yep, yep, yep. And I like the fact that the Falcon was shown to be one tough ship. I mean, we know it's uh, able to take a few asteroids, but we never got to see them, like, bounce off the, 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 the Falcon's hull. But, I mean, in Episode 7, we are led to believe that this ship is, like, Sherman tank strong I didn't like that. all the way around. I didn't like that well, okay. I mean, it's able to, like, basically plow through a forest and, like, you know, toboggan across the snow. It has deflector shields. Which, all right, all right. And also, after looking at the cross-section book recently of Star Wars, they have two different types of shields. One that functions to deflect laser beams is then another shield that functions to, def- to deflect physical objects. Correct. So, right. Physical objects, <clears throat> it's fine. Well, yeah, like a, a, the, like a, a few trees hitting it, maybe. But, I mean, it kind of basically dug its nose into Jakku and kind of like scratch, scraped itself along it's the, the surface bad. of the planet. I'll, uh, okay, I'll okay, defer, apologist. I'll, I'll defer to Robert's body of knowledge on the cross-section. <laughs> <laughs> they wouldn't do it if they couldn't do it. Okay, okay, okay. Well, yeah, look, I mean, these are pretty hardy things. They fly by means of a technology we we have no real handle on. I mean, repulsor lifts can essentially put a tank in the sky. So why not build <laughs> a Millennium Falcon that sturdy? It's probably got a pretty, pretty hardy hull, uh, shields notwithstanding. But, I mean, how, how cool was the gunner's seat being, like, so clunky and mechanical? Like, it was just the 70s superimposed into 2015 to have, like, Finn jumping into that seat and getting, whoa, shit. <laughs> I mean, because, yeah, like, back in A New Hope, those things were just, like, out of control. Yeah, and yeah. A New Hope, even That's then, it was old. It's like a really rickety, like really, really like you know. There's no softness to the 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 sort of control arm on those things. They're like you you, you turn it to the side and you kind of deflect it all the way to the side. Oh yeah, whatever. You, you get what I'm saying, right, yeah, gents? Yeah, yeah. It's a muscle. The rigidness of those controls was 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 a lot of fun and and a nice internal gag, uh, and that worked as opposed to the multitude of uh, dialogue gags that didn't, but we'll get into that on low points, shall we? Anyone else got some uh, high points to throw at us? (laughs) Mm, Do it. Something that is uh, prominent throughout the whole film, and for me is definitely a very strong sort of link back to the original Star Wars, uh, to 4, 5, and 6, is the cinematography and the camera work. Steve did mention it, you guys did mention it before as well, you know, liking it to things like Tora Tora, etc. But the whole film cinematically is beautiful, and it's shot really well. You do get a true sense of scale, which I 
felt that has always been one of Star Wars' strengths. Uh, you know, from Tatooine, Tatooine really does feel desolate and uh, and open and uh, you know and and vast. And then uh, you know, and that's obviously you know counteracted by how tight Mos Eisley is. And uh, this film does a lot of that as well, where you've got a lot of great open vistas, you know, great views of space, and then you've got these really awesome tight locations. And the the visual contrast, or the, yeah, the contrast between the two is really cool. It makes the film very interesting to watch. And some of the set pieces are beautiful. So that's one of my high points. The second time when I watched it, I definitely got a feel for that. Uh, sound design uh, also stood out for me, especially on the second one. The sound design is also very, very cool. It's epic. Uh, it is what Star Wars is meant to be. It's actually something that is missing in episodes one, two, and three for me. The exception being maybe the pod racist sequence. I kind of had a bit of a fan like giggle when uh, the guns lock up and Ray has to do that kind of that almost like an Immelman to line up the guns for Finn to shoot. I love that moment. I thought that was really, really cool. I thought that was very well thought out. Um, and very force-like, you know, it's something that, you know, it's very one in a million moment. So that really stuck out for me. I love that we got to see a bit more depth on the bad guys or on the spectrum of the Empire. You know, 4, 5, and 6, we see how the Empire works. We hear their discussions to a degree, and that is cool. And, and, and it's great. I mean, it gives us enough information. I find this film gives us a bit more insight into the New Order and... You know, even saying that is a bit of a stretch, but what I'm trying to get at is that there's a lot more character. First Order. First Order, thank you. <laughs> I, you know, I know that, but then it just, you know, uh, gets... The name up. is so memorable that, that you just can't forget yeah. it. <laughs> Don't be trolling here, Kuja. <laughs> no, <he's, laughs> you get your chance. <laughs> um, and, and also for myself, like that moment, um, you know, Steve just said the name of the planet. But I really loved it when, when those X-Wings come in uh, and they kind of save the day. Takodana! Thank you. <laughs> when they save the day, it's such a cool like, feeling. You know, you really get that like, like buzz. And I absolutely love that. And finally, one of my favorite moments in the film. And I know that this is an unpopular thing with a lot of guys. But when Ray catches Luke's saber, when it plays Luke's theme, and the whole energy behind that, like, dude, tears in my fucking eyes, you know, when I saw that. I was like, that was amazing because it just shot, went straight through me. And it was it was just, for me, that was memorable. I have a theory about that uh, use of the theme. I do, too. Which yeah. I have I'm nothing to corroborate it. But it sounded like the identical recording. Yes. The original London Symphonic Orchestra recording of... Of Star that, Wars. That's the thing that was cool about watching it the second time, because when I watched it the second time, the cinema had such such a good setup with its with its sound, and it everything was so loud and like it is so it has such a high fidelity. As it should be, Paul. Yeah. You really fucked up the first yeah, time really around. So. <laughs> you have yourself the blame there, man. That's fucking circinical to blame, and I will let them know it when I meet one of those guys again. Um, but the second the on my second viewing with the sound, you can hear the fidelity changes when she gets that saber in her hand. You can hear it. There is a there's mm. a type of mastering, and it's so different, and it's done intentionally, and it's beautiful. And I, it almost sounds analog versus versus all the digital sounds that's going on. Well, there's no doubt in my mind that they were really 
tugging on the nostalgia strings as hard as they possibly could. They were, they were, you know, they were, their feet were in the air pulling those strings down because they held that moment for a good long yes. while as she ignited that blade for the first time. Well, yeah, for the first time. And, and that was cool. Uh, yeah. And mm. I mean, uh, use the yeah, force. No, it's just, it was very powerful. Um, and then another, like, a runner up to things I thought was really cool in this film. Um, and I I love the visuals when the uh, I don't actually know what they what it's called the the super weapon the sun planet shooting star killer base yeah man. but I was, I wasn't sure if they called it the star killer because you know I've seen star killer everywhere but it's not sure if it because you know star killer is a term that's thrown around a lot in Star Wars but when the star Word. killer actually fires off and you see it from the deck of the one star destroyer I know that they've Start something else's now, but you on the deck of the Star Destroyer, and they're looking out the window, and you just see that line. And there's trailer like, scene. Yeah, well, I didn't see it in the trailer. I didn't because I didn't watch the third trailer. Oh, and you just get that. Uh, the only film I can compare it to is um, is that uh, that sunshine, sunlight, sunshine, and it because it, it just had that like it's had something very haunting and ominous and just devastating about it. Lens flare! Lens flare! It wouldn't be a J.J. Abrams science fiction film if it didn't have some lens flare. But I, I, I loved that. I just thought that had a, a very cold hum in the cinema when it happened. And I, I really enjoyed that. But yeah, those would be my, my high points. I mean, you guys have touched on other things. I'm, I'm just going to mention uh, things that you touched on quickly. I love the design of pretty much everything um, in that film. There are two things that are in my. Did you like the uh, the, the the first order stormtrooper uh, gunboats or or landing craft? Um, I did like them. I, I don't think okay. they're the prettiest things, but I do like them. Uh, for... Well, it's it's function yeah, over it's form. I mean, they yeah. are the landing boats of space. Exactly. Here, uh, low points, and I'm gonna start from the uh, film apologist <laughs> himself, Robert Lee. <laughs> apologist, what? Uh, uh, okay, uh, <laughs> how would you like me to refer to you, Robert? Well, he's, 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 he's a fan. You are. He's a fan. You are the the biggest. Of this the, movie. I suppose you could call you me are a, a true apologist, believer. at least in the way that most fans seem to view this film, or at least from my experience. I'm going to call you Jedi Disciple Rob. <laughs> Jedi Master? Because, uh, well, you have much Jedi to learn. Jedi Council Master. Jedi Master <laughs> Council Member. <laughs> Alright. You're, you, you're the Yoda. Yoda. Yes. Yeah. Definitely. Or Mace Windu. I don't know. He's cool. He's got a purple lightsaber. Awesome. He does indeed. <laughs> do, you, do you own a purple anything, Rob? Um. <laughs> um. Not really. There you go. <laughs> I do have some green stuff, so I suppose Yoda is more appropriate. 
Okay, so <clears throat> low points. Probably my biggest low point would be in a film that kind of strives to kind of mesh CGI and practical effects together. I think the way that Leader Snoke was handled was was he looks awful. He just Word. looks so <laughs> obviously CGI. It's it's like mm. it's, for me it's just a low point that they kind of why couldn't they just get Gollum to just be himself? <laughs> Yeah. Like he was yeah. in Age of Ultron. I mean, there he is acting as an actor and not, not you know, kind of like a motion-captured actor. And he was fairly menacing in Age of Ultron in that very, very small part as Claw. They could have just make-upped him up, you know? I think that's a low point for me, is um, Snoke. General Hux, kind of like the leader, his, sometimes he, he was almost too over-the-top in his... In his delivery, in his performance, I felt he was like he was being too villainy. That kind of came across quite obviously in his speech, where you kind of see him, you know, in front of the sea of stormtroopers, and he's like screaming, and his face is contorting, and he's like, "I am a villain. Fear me." Well, it was a convincing performance. I didn't really see any cracks in in the actor's work. What I did, however, miss, unfortunately is a sense of the old god. And this is something that a friend of mine who I saw it with raised almost immediately as we were discussing it outside the cinema. He misses the older English gentleman kind of approach to the Empire. In every, other, in every original trilogy film, the Empire was staffed by, at least in their sort of upper echelons, was staffed by older British actors. This guy looks... This guy looks about 25. Yeah, yeah and he's which is probably the leader, you know, at least... Of the um, entire First Order, or at least the, the sort of executive commander. Yeah. Snoke might be pulling the strings, but this is the guy who everyone's following the orders yeah, of. Yeah, he's the Grand Moff Tarkin of this whole thing. And he looks a little bit wet behind the ears. Grand Moff Tarkin, Peter Cushing, I mean, he was uh, in his 60s. Yeah. <laughs> and, and he had that kind of gravitas. Yeah. This guy didn't read as as authoritarian to me. I suppose the reason for that is Snoke wanted these youngsters to staff his his probably much easier to control. Exactly right. They're all very easily influenced by his wisdom and power and age and yeah, he was the old CG thing. Yeah, he's the old dog. <laughs> <laughs> and they're all the young mutts. I would have liked to have seen a Walter White in that role. That would have been a lot better for me. Oh, wow, yeah. Brian Cranston. Well, see, yeah. Cranston is a rock star. One of, one of the issues I had, and I know Abrams did this flick in the UK, so he grabbed up. A... But you, you, you can't break that convention. Like the no, Empire no, no. or First Drinker. Order have got to be staffed by Brits. Drinker. But I mean, I know that uh, I know that actor's kind of on fire. He was in Ex Machina, where he he, he played a really great role, and then uh, more recently he just was in that uh, the Revenant film, which which you gents might take in in a bit. Um, but uh, he's a great actor. Uh, I I felt miscast. I needed more menace from that role, and it just didn't ring true. He he doesn't feel evil. He feels more balanced as as a human as an actor. So. It, it just didn't work. Like, I could see him yelling, and I saw the intensity in his eyes, you know, speaking to the First Order, but I didn't feel the menace, you know? 
I do feel that he's unconvinced by Kylo Ren, though. Like, that's something, that's something I will stand up for him for. Because when he deals with Kylo Ren, he's very, he's cautious around Kylo, but he seems very unconvinced. Like, it's almost like he feels Kylo's going to betray well, them. Those two are actually, the, in my opinion, the two best character dynamics. Like, the best character dynamic in the uh, film are those two. So I, I concur with that. I'd agree with that. Well, what's their competition, Ray and Finn? Oh, Finn and Poe. <laughs> oh, you, you mean you mean a handful of actors that, that didn't have a whole lot of presence either way? Yeah, the the insta bromance. <laughs> Look, they they gave Finn every opportunity to woo his audience. It didn't work, brother. It and this work. this is segueing into my my critique of these films that his role as comic relief will date this movie like Jar Jar Binks. It's just like, it's too contemporary. It's too street. It's like, uh, yeah, no, in, in a, in a, in a, in a world where Star Wars will always feel timeless and grandiose and like space opera on an epic scale. That character, I think, will not appreciate over time. That term space opera has a lot more meaning to me now than it did before I watched this film, by the way. Oh, it's a family movie. It's about family. It's just like a soap opera. No, 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 no. It's like six degrees of separation from Darth Vader. This movie movie was a... How do you tie in with Darth? (laughs) This movie was a commercial, brother. Space opera is another matter, but we'll get to that later. Uh, What I took from it, it was exactly how important family is even in a galaxy far, far away, you know, th- we can cross light years, but we still are well, having family infighting and bickering. So what was your low point, Stephen? Other than Finn being, like, particularly dull and, like, actually not funny at all. I mean, it was the cheap shots, like, you know, a, a pleb audience like yours, yeah. Paul, with the kind of the... The, the people who've, who've really inherited Star Wars very late in the game and kind of it, are just kind of like, yeah, I saw that one with like Anakin and like, like it's really cool. Like Darth Maul, you're always badass. Hey, yo, that's so good. Yeah, and I'm going to see a new one. Like, oh, like those guys probably digged everything that Finn had to do. Like, you know, the interplay with him and BB-8. Like, oh, tell her where the rebel base is. Will you, will you, will you? <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> yeah, that was that was that was a low. Um, where the pace really kind of dropped, you know, after they f- found the Falcon and they're on their way and they're like, woohoo! I never knew you could do this. I never knew you could do this either. Oh fuck! Poison gas. Uh, switch off the poison gas. I mean, like that's that passage was a little bit clumsy, giving way to where I really like. <laughs> That was unfortunately like tied in with Han Solo's yes. entrance. He seeing him and Chewbacca was fantastic, but like what they're like running like fucking monsters <laughs> through space, and they're in deep with these two gangs, uh, which are are populated with teenagers. Like I could give rocks about those like 
pop-up targets. Yeah. I mean, the the two gangs that board the ship and the, the Wrath Tar sequence. I mean, like, uh, Landis, Max Landis put it best when he said, like, it was Star Wars doing Men in Black 2. Yep. You know, having these monsters run through the tunnels. And Star Wars has a rich tradition of monsters. Wampers, the Diag- Diagona from the fucking trash compactor. It's Dianoga, brother. The <laughs> Dianoga. Thank you, brother from North America. You teach me how to talk proper from American. Continent. <laughs> <laughs> um, the the Rancor. I mean, yes, Star Wars is, is monster laden, but like those things were just CG blobs of tentacles and teeth and kind of generic they really did look like extras from exactly. men in black so uh yeah, that that was that sucked a lot uh, and it only got worse as we went to this lush green pa- planets of paradise which i think was trying to ape the Mos Eisley cantina mm-hmm. or jabba's palace but phew, it just had no balls man it smelled like like pine forests to me Whereas the Mos Eisley Cantina smelled like, like, mm. like hedonism and bad consciences, and as I said before, Jabba's Palace smells like defecation and death. Like that place, just everything was just so clean and so so happy. The vibe was just like mellow. And Ma- Maz Kanata, Maz Kanata, I suppose, was trying to be as memorable as Yoda, and she was well scripted and certainly very nobly performed by. An Oscar winner, I believe? Lupita Nyong'o? Yes. I couldn't be asked, man, because like a lot of people <laughs> came up to me afterwards and said, but I thought Lupita Nyong'o was in this film. I was like, who? Because <laughs> they, they didn't know what role she was playing, because I don't think they recognized her voice alone. And I certainly don't recognize the name, because I haven't been up on my Game of Thrones or whatever. Whatever she's famous for. No, that's that's um, Gwendolyn Christie. Is the character <laughs> who played Captain Phasma is the oh, is the actress who was from Game of Thrones? Another enormous head scratcher for the fan community of both of these great <laughs> uh, fantasy franchises. Like her casting, anyone could have been in that suit. Really, she could have dialed in sick and just picked up a paycheck. I guess she was so excited about being in Star Wars, she failed to read the fine print that oh, this character never appears unmasked. Of course, it opens the door for huge potential in the sequels. Well, that's just another illusion, brother. Oh, it has been bandied about that she might turn bounty hunter. She might be your next uh, Boba Fett fetish, buddy. Mm. <laughs> Boba fetish. I see you. What? I see you. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here, ladies and gentlemen. Um, so, yeah, that was a throwaway. Uh, okay. Uh, what else was a, a weak point? I mean, that, that, the pace dropped horrifically. Horrifically. I was like... Where, when are the TIE Fighters coming? Where's that cool sequence where the X-Wings fly low over the water that I saw in the trailer? Oh, thank God. Here it is. Whew, movie Ooh. saved. Let's move on. Okay. And here's something that I haven't heard anyone in the fan community raise. So it's going to be new, new criticism. But it was difficult watching septuagenarian actors. When you watch Alec Guinness in A New Hope, he's an old wizard and he's posited as such. Watching Han Solo as an old guy, I don't know if it works, mm-hmm. man. 
he's kind of rickety Watch and ha- Harrison Ford is, is is an impressive actor and he always has been in my eyes but like he's an old man mm. it's it's it is unfair of us to expect him to be able to pull off a convincing swashbuckling adventuring space pirate see what i'm hearing is a bad role they didn't write his they didn't write his character right brother they wanted han solo to be doing the shit that he always has been they wanted him never to have grown up unfortunately you're watching a han solo that should have been retired a long time ago not willing to go into retirement Unfortunately, his son had to make him go into retirement. In the old expanded universe, obviously, which is nothing now, he he matured into a more responsible uh, part of society. He he wasn't still like ripping people off and, and selling space poodles to people and stuff. That is far more believable, but of course doesn't make for a gripping reintroduction to the character. I don't know. People wanted to see I don't Han Solo. Know. People. Want- Really, it wouldn't have worked otherwise. You wanted to see Han Solo doing Han Solo shit. You couldn't see him sitting on his porch. Like, I mean, that that was that was Luke Skywalker's role. He went into retirement. It doesn't have to be that dull, obviously. Yeah, but I mean, I feel like depending on, I mean, if you what affected these characters. I mean, you know, they they sort of sun turning the dark side, Uh, forcing Luke to leave. I mean. Those could be good motivations for why they kind of chose to go back to what they knew best. You know, uh, they're kind I of like Robert. they're kind of scarred by this event, and they're kind of like we we can't even be together. I mean, that you know, Lan La- and Hair, Leia and Han. <laughs> <laughs> I, I see you. I like it. So I mean, if if you take a certain look at it, yes, you can argue either way in the end. It's just for yourself. Obviously, you want to see them be a certain way, and I do. Feel mm. in general, Harrison Ford did kind of hit that old Han Solo. Oh no, he's Harrison Ford's bulletproof in that character. I think so. Uh, it still felt like him. Look, like an he older was he was him. acting with actors that, that that weren't on his level. I mean, we can all acknowledge that much. Yeah. So I mean, he was carrying like look, four and five people on screen at a time. I don't think all actors uh, age well. I mean, he certainly never lost his good looks, but like, I just felt like sometimes, you know, he, he couldn't be asked. Like, I, I felt like sometimes he was he was actually looking like he was trying to remember what line comes next. Oh, he was, brother, but he was he was remembering that he had back end points on the film too. So I mean, like. Absolutely, of course. Well, I mean, not like he needs to pad out his his <laughs> uh, his earnings anymore. I'm huh. I'm pretty sure he's he's doing okay. No, Harrison Ford hasn't cared about money since the seventies, brother. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anywho. Yeah, yeah, but like, I don't know. There was a kind of a a lethargy that I felt from him. There was no danger. For him, he knew he was going quietly into the night. Illusion to a bigger he was not going, illusion. He was not going to rail against the darkness. He was going to die. Uh, he came into this movie. Did you watch Interstellar? Having cap- <laughs> like having capitulated. Yeah, I have actually. Basically, there was there was a, a level of capitulation in Han Solo's portrayal. The the fire was gone, and so when it was time for him to bow out. 
the, the, the pain that I felt at that moment was not the a pain of being robbed of ever seeing Han Solo adventure again because, like, I didn't want to see him adventure again. He's an old man. He needed to go. Like, it's, it's like you've, you've produced your best work. You now need to bow out. That wasn't the sadness that, I, that rocked me. The sadness that really, really, really gutted me was the fact that I was watching my childhood hero die. Very few films have done that. We didn't see it. Or had the guts to no, do no, no, that. No. We didn't see him die. Uh, yeah. No, no, no. no. Th- I'm not going is... to make the argument that he's alive. That is a trope. If you don't see the body, the character's I'm not, not dead. I'm not saying he's alive. He's dead. But, again, like, this this is all leading – all roads lead to my point. Everything that you've been bringing up. That's all. Just mm-hmm. making a, a mental tab right there. Boop. Tabbed. <laughs> I hope you draw these strings together eventually, Cooch. It's going to okay. be dramatic. Carrie Fisher also looked kind of like she was dialing it in. I know she hasn't been interested in being an actress since, I mean, since the Star Wars furore kind of died down for her. But, like, eh. yeah, man, I don't know. I, I just find it difficult watching older actors who haven't established themselves for being older actors. Uh, Alec Guinness offered one of the greatest performances in a Star Wars movie uh, as the wise old wizard in A New Hope. Um, these guys were not that. They were the young, fresh core of the Star Wars movies now 35 years down the line. It was it was difficult for me. But let's hear some low points from someone else. <laughs> How about you, Paul? General Leia Organa. This character wasn't written that well. Like, she didn't seem to have the same kind of class or kind of swing that she has in 4, 5, and 6. And Han Solo, maybe, okay, and this is sometimes where I kind of wish I never I had never seen the trailers. But I actually find found that having seen Han Solo and Chewie on the trailer was more exciting for me than when I saw it in the film. Because of the events that preceded their arrival and then... Uh, carried on after you know we had been introduced to them because i feel the same way about that whole you know pits and space men in black sequence i didn't like it i didn't feel anything for anybody there i was actually like okay i did enjoy one or two of han's lines there and i thought that was very cute but but that's the whole thing the whole sequence is cute there's nothing great or substantial about it really um so that was the one thing uh, that I just didn't enjoy. So it's Carrie, and Fisher, Carrie Fisher and Harrison Ford's portrayal of their characters, I just didn't feel were on point. Uh, the spaceship sequence, which I'm sure everybody feels the same way about, uh, I didn't enjoy. Um, something, uh, just to echo something Stephen said earlier uh, about Finn, I find that uh, Finn is like a likable and dislikable character at the same time. Because on one hand, uh, I'm not actually sure what he's doing in the film. Uh, like in the, f- oh, he's making jokes is he's, what he's uh, doing. He's making jokes, but, uh, but th- that's that's, but that's not, not the right way to do yeah, it, man. Also, yeah. Don't. There shouldn't be scripted gags in Star Wars. It doesn't yeah, work. Yeah, I get that. It's, it's like, boom! I made a joke. Funny, yeah, <laughs> it should be one-liners. Uh, you know, like ad-libbing stuff. I, and I agree fully. No, it should be. It should be incidentally yes. funny. It's like C-3PO complaining about the fact that he's melted Princess's uh, chamber. is funny because it's not a joke. Yeah. 
the Anthony Daniels is playing it. He's playing it sincerely. He's like, I just complained that it was freezing in the princess's chamber. Uh, you know, it, the, the interplay is legitimately like believable dialogue. That's funny. Exactly. But to have the dude go on about oh, no, 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 but exactly that because I find that. Finn is kind of, for me, is a kind of a combination of, of Jojo Pink. We'll use the Force. Yeah. That's not how the Force works. It's like, ah, that's a funny joke. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I, like, I, like I was saying, it's just, I find he's a mix of like... That Finn, he's always being goofy. <laughs> he's a mix of like Jojo Binks and uh, Shia LaBeouf's character from Transformers. And, <laughs> and, then, and then he has something about him that is fairly noble. But I just, I don't know. I just, I, I struggle to find what he's doing there, um, what he's doing in that film. I, I, I almost feel like he's been put in the film to be some kind of damsel in distress, and it's, it's very difficult for me to reconcile his character right now. Well, he's breaking, he's breaking a few tropes because he's, he's not a faceless yes. minion. He's showing, he's showing a human side to the stormtroopers, Illusion. and that's something that 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 we have experienced through the EU where there have been writing stories written from the perspective of stormtroopers, you know, the grunts in the field from the, the empire, but we've never gotten that in a film. So it's like, wow, this is a stormtrooper, but he's got a backstory and he's, he's got feelings and, and, and he's got post-traumatic stress disorder (laughs) when he sees his buddy die in the field. And this brings me to my next thing. I like Ray a lot. I really like her as a character. I also like that she's a girl and that, you know, for all intents and purposes, she is the main character. But, I, and this also ties into Finn. What I'm going to say might come across as a bit controversial, but I really don't like the fact that this film has like a sort of a, a feminist angle to it. Like, please don't misunderstand me. There's a difference between feminism, you know, and ism, and having a female lead. And I just feel that, like, Finn's kind of, uh, you know, tripping over himself, falling into sort of male behavior patterns of grabbing the girl's hand and trying to run, and then her being like, "What are you doing? What are you doing?" Shit. I just feel that all he's doing is, in a lot of ways, is kind of trying to serve some kind of weird feminist appeasing angle to this film that really pisses me off. Because as much as I like Ray, I do feel that she's a bit of a Mary Sue as well. And and I know like Are you I'm, saying like, that this film has an agenda, Paul? I am saying that there's that that it feels like there is a bit of that in this film. You know, that hmm. just for for uh, the sake of clarity, what is a Mary Sue? A Mary it's Sue It's a character with no discernible flaws. Yes. Bingo Good at everything, instantly likable, comes from rags to riches in seconds of screen time. Like I said, and please don't misunderstand me. I am one of the biggest sort of like fans of female characters, especially if they're written as female characters. Who, who is woman. your who is your favorite female character from last year's cinema? Katniss uh, Everett's one. one. Well, actually, <laughs> um, you're not going to rep your Southern African native. Oh, it's Shalise Theron. Yeah, Bingo. But, yeah, but I don't think uh, in that setting, I think she's a great girl power character, and that's cool. But I don't want to go there too much. And I Fair really enough. liked, I, I really liked, um, I keep wanting to call her Eve, but from Ex Machina, I liked her too, because there was also okay. something um, about her, and that film preyed on your male reaction to what you perceive so, to be a, a helpless woman. Anyway, I won't go into that too much. 
I just feel that there's this kind of like like JJ Abrams or all the producers of this film have been very smart at ticking certain boxes to make sure a lot of people are happy. And one of those one of those groups at the moment, and this is something I feel kind of also dates the film a bit, um, especially for future generations. People are going to look at this film and and I'm sure that in 30 years or so, people are going to look at this film and go, it was trying to push a feminist agenda when feminism was a hotly debated topic within society today. And I do feel that, unfortunately, Finn and Ray as characters are victims okay, of, of that, which is a pity because, like I said, I love a female lead. I mean, I I really do. And and I'm not talking about a female lead like, oh, you know, like an, an X-Men character that's wearing a tight bodysuit and comes in with one-liners. I'm talking about a fully fleshed out female character that, you know, actually cares about things other than, you know, guys that you know, other girls are interested in shit, you know, you know, feels a greater responsibility, which Ray does have. She does have that side to her, which is really cool. It just, like I said, it just feels like it pushes that agenda. That's something that when I walked out of the film the second time, I was like, hmm. And then also having one or two friends that uh, are sort of like uh, bra burners, they were just sort of like pumping how great Ray is. And, you know, it's so cool to have a female character. And then they post all this shit about Hasbro not having released a female figure or figurine of ray meanwhile they actually have they just haven't released a big one but whatever the fuck anyway so that was one thing that was a bit of a low point and then finally i was really disappointed with captain phasma not because uh i couldn't care less about gwendolyn christie i mean she's great in great, a game of thrones she's fantastic but what upset me about it is that there was so much like hype and marketing like oh the silver stormtrooper oh and then the chrome stormtrooper is a girl oh well okay they're a feminist angle again and then they push this whole character up and there she is and then and there she isn't and i was just like oh wow i feel sorry put her in the trash compactor yeah. cheers and I, I, i've had friends that have uh, debated that nice. she's possibly um a traitor and that she's actually been a spy for the resistance which is that uh, you know it's plausible if it is that's cool maybe whatever the last two little things, uh, in 30 years, in that empire, in, in space, in, you know, the after defeating the Death Star and crippling the empire, um, the rebellion hasn't been able to form a new government. Like, seriously, they're still calling themselves the resistance. Like, for me, that's just seemed a bit odd. I thought they would kind of be the way, you know. <laughs> But well, no, it's they, the well, there, but there is the the new republic. That's what the Starkiller base was destroying. Was yeah, was well, the new no, republic. I know. So there's no, a no. new republic, and then there's the separate group ran run by General Leia, which is Correct. the resistance. No, no. Wait, see, Robert, I, I, you're talking about that 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 series of planets that the First Order blows up. Yes, the, that was the seat of the new republic's government so those those were essentially the emotional stakes of the film but we've never been introduced to those planets is that accurate yeah yeah it's alderaan all over again and that's what i wanted to get at you see with alderaan we knew that alderaan was important because princess leia you know Mm. hold on hold on steven i got you i got you no no we know like alderaan is important because it's princess leia so we kind of get the idea there's some kind of you know disco space monarchy going on but okay? but as viewers how do we know the how do we feel the loss of of uh, alderaan when it gets blown up as viewers Cause because Steven Obi-Wan, referenced... 
Because Obi-Wan feels a disturbance in the Force. He It actually affects him on like a, on a Force level. He goes, ugh. So, you know? so yeah. basically, Steven alluded to uh, uh, Alex Guinness's performance, which was integral to the success of that film. You mm. feel you feel uh, Obi-Wan's pain. Sir Alec Guinness. Thank you, sir. <laughs> Thank you, brother. Um, <laughs> but no, you feel that pain because of Alex Guinness. I don't even know the name of the planets that they blew up. And they blew up several of them. Yeah. Called the Hosnian system. Yeah, no, 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 no. <laughs> You're welcome. And I, I want to know why they didn't blow up Coruscant. Well, they, I, I mean, they if J.J. If Abrams had the balls to blow up Vulcan and as a result have a, a principal character on Star Trek carrying a badass grudge where he should be an emotionless uh, sort of automaton... They don't really need to be the resistance. They could just be the Senate, you know, the, or the the New Republic or something. You know, they... yeah. That's some people have argued that yeah, it could instead of calling it the resistance, they basically it's the army of the Republic. Exactly, and I, I know why they don't. The no, 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 no. Hang on, hang on. Surely the New Republic are opposed to having their own military because that is exactly how the Empire came about. So. They are purely a, 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 a leadership or political organization with no militant wing, which is why General Organa has to go out on a limb, get her own private army, basically, yeah. in, order to, in order to have some kind of resistance to this new emergent threat. Richard. Out of the ashes of the empire come the First Order, and if, if there's no arms build up on the side of the Republic – there is no first line of defense against this new order. Uh, first order. <laughs> the first order is actually the resistance. I mean, they're resisting this, the, the established government. I'm yeah, the new, new mm. republic, essentially. Well, they're, they're also trying awesome. to reinstate what they believe to be the true leadership of the galaxy, which is the empire, which for them has never truly died. They represent it. They need to burn out to cauterize the rot that has set in to the galaxy since uh, the passing of, of Emperor Palpatine. Exactly, yeah. but my point is, is just that I hope that if they didn't, they didn't explain it in this film in any way, and they haven't really hinted at it. They've just given us uh, breadcrumbs, and as fans, having watched the previous films, we're filling in those blanks for ourselves. So I do hope that in, they don't have to go and spell it out. It's just I just hope that they fill in the blanks a little bit in the you know, the, the the next film or two. I want to return to Kujo's point about how the destruction of the seat of the New Republic uh, is handled kind of glibly yes, and, and yeah. just like, oh, well, okay. let's, let's launch a counterattack. I mean, maybe because they're super stoic military leaders and, and Princess Leia don't shed no tears no more. She's seen enough bloodshed in her in her life. Look, if a planet gets destroyed, you're going to shed some tears, brother. I don't care who you are. We didn't feel it enough. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Like, maybe if they destroyed Coruscant. But you see that, and we've, we've at least got some history wrapped up in that place. And that's where a callback to the, the prequels would have been useful. Word. It's like, you've spent the majority of those three films, you know, in plots that that uh, 
that developed out of that world. You got some idea of the people that were there. I mean, like Jar Jar Binks would have gone up in flames if he was on Coruscant. Well, maybe there's a reason why we didn't go to Coruscant. I mean, it it was the seat of the entire empire. It could be yeah. that they haven't even had been able to wrest it from them. I mean, like in some of the expanding universe books, I and mean, especially I think in the, the Dark Empire, I think yeah. it's called, um, yeah. Like it's completely destroyed because it's so hotly contested. You know, yeah. I, I imagine that they couldn't actually reclaim it. That's what they had to set up in a completely different system. And this is actually something I blame Cujo for this. <laughs> when we sort of mentioned welcome, it, brother. <laughs> when we mentioned it the first time, because we sort of briefly chatted and then I watched it the second time and then I actually properly fell in love with the film. But because Cujo had sort of mentioned this, the moral ground of this film is very interesting because a moral thing that I feel is just a bit kind of wonky in episode seven, if I refer to episode four, five, and six, one of the biggest messages, aside from having hope and aside from, you know, believing in yourself and believing that you can actually be greater than yourself, at least these are, this is the message that was conveyed to me, but, but I don't think I'm alone in, in feeling that. Um, but one of the big messages that comes across in those original films is that dictatorships are bad. Autocratic governments are bad. You know, that's why we have rebellions to to challenge them, to stop them from taking over, because, you know, they just, you know, seed corruption and destruction all over the galaxy. And I mean, we see it in, in three different points. We see it in in the fact in the first film where even though there is actually some form of government, uh, the Empire just sidesteps it and kidnaps uh, Princess Leia and sort of interrogates her, you know, to try and get, you know, information from her about, you know, about the rebellion, and then toasts Alderaan because, you know, why not? It it sort of seemed convenient. And then in Empire, we are sort of reminded that it's a bad thing again, because when Darth Vader makes his deal with Lando Calrissian, uh, Lando's almost convinced that, you know, everything's going to be hunky-dory, and by the end of it, you know, the Empire takes over Bespin anyway. And in Jedi, well, Jedi is the culmination of all of that together. But you generally see that whenever the Empire anywhere shit goes down. I find in this film, they, it's very difficult to like to to sort of like what are the Resistance fighting against? Yes, they're fighting against the First Order. Why? Okay, because the First Order is maybe trying to do the same thing that the Empire did. Okay, but they throughout. Yeah, with a big ass laser. That big ass laser that they're holding at everybody's heads. Yeah, cool. But then at the same time, uh, you it, the whole film is filled with like a moderate level of despair. I mean, Jakku just feels as shit as Tatooine did back in the day anyway. And you can tell this because a, a TIE fighter pilot goes down in the desert and the people don't care about helping him. They're just scavenging parts already, you know. It was a nice touch. The level of desperation that you feel on that world is probably indicative of, of how the, the entire galaxy is is scarred by all this warfare like everyone's just trying to eke out an existence exactly. Which is... like when when a, when a bb droid is up for grabs the whole place explodes into violence yeah. like what crazy exactly. and then when we land on Bell, <laughs> we want that droid so like hitmen are called out like it's not tatooine where like a bunch of jawas managed to get high-tech functioning robots and cobble them together and like parade them around. No one's got that level of high tech equipment anymore. It's not commonplace at all. Which is again, which is let down by Taco Bell. 
You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> because, like you said, it's all pine foresty and things seem pretty okay there until the first order arrives and then shoots shit up. Like I said, I just when I step away from the film uh, and I try to be objective about it, I find that the one thing that stands out is, well, the biggest moral that I have to learn from the film so far is don't throw tantrums. Don't misunderstand me. I love this film. And as we mentioned earlier, I did put this film up above Jedi for the, the high points that I have for it. But these are my low points about about this film, about Force Awakens. I wanted to get into Kudo's uh, point of view, that this uh, film is just a cog in Disney's pushing of the Star Wars brand. That's some heavy lifting. You want me to get into that? <laughs> True words have never been spoke. Of course, Star Wars is a huge brand. It goes deeper than just making a movie. You gotta make a lot of toys, man. You gotta make BB-8 robots that you can control with your mobile device. Well, not just toys, but also, I think a l what a lot of people have said, and what I think what you could accuse the film of being is that, yeah, a question, is The Force Awakens complete in itself? You know, you can accuse it of knowingly being structured like the first part of a bigger story, which it is. And also perhaps not being enough of a film on its own, in that it teases a lot of questions, which you you can imagine that they're not going to actually answer in the films. They are going to answer those in, in other media. So like the comic books, where they're yeah. just now, Marvel Comics have just announced that they're doing a Poe Dameron comic book, which takes place before episode seven. Yes, yeah, good. Yeah, I, I can't I can't hold back anymore. As soon as I watched this film both times, as late as it was, I came home and I put in a new hope because I kept hearing that this was basically a soft reboot for the franchise. And I was like, is it? And I was like, what was the intention of the first movie in 77? And what is this intention of this film in our modern age? And you look at Abrams and you, you juxtapose him with uh, Lucas. And you're wondering, like, Abrams had reservations about making this film. He backed out once and there wasn't a clear story on why he felt pressure to make it or why he was had concerns or reservations. I never got that story. I don't know if you gents did. Oh, geez. The weight of expectation, I think, if I was to guess okay, a reason, that it. would be it. Expectation could be like it. you can't, you can't win. You can win. You, you can make win. an objective. <laughs> oh, okay. You know what I mean? But it feels like that he was, he knew he was getting in bed with Disney. And from where I live, maybe it's a bit skewed, but Disney holds most of the media conglomerate. To me, that is the story. And I can, I can get into where the film might go. Uh, I can definitely speculate there were points of intrigue. But what is Disney's intention with this film? And, and you guys have already done all the heavy lifting for me. Paul alluded to the fact that there were, there's, a, there's an agenda. There's a social agenda. And so you're like, okay, so let's deal with social issues. Uh, we have a mixed racial couple emerging, possibly. Uh, we have a possible gay couple with, with 
Poe and uh, um, I'm sorry, Finn. <laughs> all these, all these have been bantered. So I mean, like, you have social structures being approached by this new movie. So there's, there's, there's cause to like to, to look at it and say, okay, there's, there's something going on here. It, but it's, it's a great popcorn film as well. So I mean, I, I could draw parallels with Kylo Ren's uh, mask uh, aesthetic, looking very Middle Eastern chic. I, I could say that obviously. And being heavy as fuck. Indeed. Indeed. <laughs> That was that was actually a nice touch in the film to show the weight. He likes to handicap himself, I guess. Well, he. I'm gonna feel the weight of my decision, literally. <laughs> well, I, I think I think Paul also alluded to him having kind of an emo uh, millennial vibe. So I mean, like, the film, <laughs> the sum of its parts do not equal a good film for me. But I mean, like, again, Lucas, I didn't know who he was. He was a character that I grew up literally miles away from. And I saw his films and he was revered in the community before the internet. You would see him in the paper and he had this glorious head of hair and this beard. And he was just doing stuff that nobody else was doing. And we got like another space agent. center. <laughs> he was. And, and I, I started to think about what is a space opera? Like what is, why is it differentiated from sci-fi? And, and an opera is garishly costumed people playing out the same problems that we deal with every day. So, I mean, like, Essentially, like, mm, watch watch out for that term, okay. though. I think Lucas Lucas liked to refer to his movies as space fantasy. I say space opera just to make the point about it being a family affair, like a soap opera. But Lucas was just like distinguishing what he was doing from hardcore science fiction. Well, Lucas has has one of the probably larger egos in our society, and that's not a criticism. I mean, if you look at what he's done. And what he's created, it's massive. Well, he certainly had to eat, eat humble pie uh, not too long ago with the prequel trilogy being hugely rejected by fans. He did, and... but I also think in the shadow of this new film, now that we're all awoke, those films were trying to frame the U.S. society at that time. Because I looked back and I was like, well, why would he make these movies about government proceedings? And all of a sudden you open your eyes. He was portraying commentary, and, and this is a this is a Joburg reveal right here. I'm about to get a little dangerous. Uh, Jar Jar Binks, Jar Jar. Does that sound like George to you? <laughs> I mean, we're talking about a Touché. we're talking about a character that created uh, the most powerful entity in the U.S. in the world, which is surveillance. And to uproar some oh, yeah. laws after some really tragic events on the East Coast. So, I mean, like, I'm not mm. trying to go there. I'm saying that George Lucas is a revolutionary. And he sold his property to protect the people in, in his business. I, I know we're not talking lightsabers, but that's reality. He, he made some bad moves. Ego got away from him. That, that's clear. You know, if we ever get into shit about this podcast, it's not your stuff they're going to talk about. It's the damn feminism. Anyway, carry on. <laughs> Thank you. T take it back to a surface level. I'm, I'm done. Uh, I'll drop the mic no. on that. But, no. dude, I I'm saying that I understand what this film is. And Disney, there's only one game left. I'm pretty sure we all know that. And that's the money game. And nobody's better at it than Disney. So uh, I tip my cap to them in that respect. So if the prequels were an allusion to uh, the American government structure of the late 1990s and early 2000s, sure. 
what is the agenda to episode seven? Well, I make think money. that make making no, no, Benjis. No, no. I, I think that they do muddy the waters. I mean, early on, because uh, you always have to talk about a villain's first entrance on screen. Like, what kind of weight does it carry? Uh, Kylo Ren uh, comes down after they subdue that village. But the waters are muddied because not everybody is towing the company line. You have Finn who's like, what's going on? And they have a nice allusion to the blood print on the hand, which if you're a gamer, you're probably feeling the Republic Commando. So, I mean, it's 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 a nice moment because you're like, oh, not everybody is evil here. And they introduce mind control, which Disney has approached uh, in a previous series, which I believe Paul enjoyed. And that was... Uh, Jessica Jones. Oh, Jessica, Jessica Jones, Jones. Yeah. also visiting mind control. So it, it's one of those things where like you're like, okay, these people are victims. They they portray the stormtroopers as victims pretty early, yet yet we we kill them indiscriminately throughout the film. Now once again, the the waters are muddied, and I think that that film portrays it pretty well. It, it creates a little bit of confliction to, for me. Well, not just for you. I mean, the, the film itself has created a ton of conflict within the Star Wars community. Word. The number of reviews I've watched on, on YouTube where now people are saying, essentially, Force Awakens is so bad that it's actually made the prequels look good. And there are a lot of people, oh my goodness. There are a lot of people who actually say that they prefer the prequels because it expanded the universe of Star Wars so much. And it gave you so much backstory and, and story I about can, where things came can, from that a lot of people, yeah, that people love the prequels now. Well, I can defend those words. I mean, I think that the prequels, now people understand them because people didn't understand who Lucas was. Mm. And until he, he started getting in the press again, because he's not online. He doesn't have Twitter. He doesn't do any of that. And once again, he's from Northern California, which, I mean... There's a lot of people in Northern California that shape our world. Uh, Gates, Zuckerberg, just a few names right there that kind of define our everyday. I didn't know who Lucas was until he started saying, like, this is why I did this. He, Dude, he called Disney white slavers. I don't know what that means. Do you? <laughs> and then subsequently was paid out uh half in cash and half in disney shares so who's the true so boss so who's the true boss <laughs> he just he just kicked dirt he just flamed his own investment because he doesn't care mm. i mean he's, he's well he doesn't care about money dude, that's for he's, sure he's a rebel he always has been it's just that we lost sight of that because he made some crappy movies that's what i'm taking from this that he's still a boss he's also come away a little bit singed from it sure he's sure. like I put out the special editions. You guys hated that. Mm -hmm. I did the prequels. You guys hated that. Ego, bro. I'm done with this. Ego. Fuck you guys. Play in your own universe. I'm done adding he, to it. He's in his 60s, and he still has one of the best manicured beards you'll ever see. Enough said. <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying that this guy is like... He's in his 70s. Oh, fair enough. But you, you can't get past the fact that he, he, is, he is a monster of sorts. But he did also kick dirt on the most powerful media entity in our world. So he he did eat those words. Obviously, somebody got in his ear hours later. But I, I see Lucas now. And that's why I enjoy the prequels to a degree thematically. There's also some buried stuff in there, which I'll probably approach another day. But there is also some of the worst. Oh, no, no question. No question, bro. Ever conceived. And, and some of the... <laughs> 
the most ambitious, certainly, but like it's definitely an early foray into complete CG worlds and characters because it does not hold up, man. I'd sooner watch the practical special effects, clunky as they may be by modern standards of the original trilogy, than watch the prequels for their effects. Echo that sentiment, brother. Bingo. Oh, by the way, sorry, I just have a practical point about Episode 7 that I've just remembered. I've been trying to remember it this whole time, and I'm going to strike while the iron's hot. If Kylo Ren wanted the droid intact so that he could get the map, how come every single time they spotted Finn and Rey, the TIE Fighters just started raining laser bolts down on them, like to blow them to smithereens. It was pretty evident that they were not trying to uh, recapture the droid in one piece. Somehow that message got uh, itself losted, lost in communication. Yeah. Oh, the writing was uneven? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> Basically, that, that, that was some, yeah. some very badly written orbesh. Abrams' specialty right there. Guns blazing again? Let me ask you guys. <laughs> Are you guys trying to take these people alive? A question yeah. about spaceship usage. Does it bother you the way Abrams portrays spaceships? Uh, he had the uh, SS Enterprise underwater, and, and then he had the Millennium Falcon skipping off uh, real estate. Did you feel anything? Feel any way about that? Neither, neither of them bugged me, personally. I'm a huge fan of both, mm. actually. <laughs> it's just uh, breaking conventions and showing you the Falcon and the Enterprise in ways that you've never previously thought possible. It hasn't even occurred to me to, to, to hide the Enterprise under the uh, under the ocean. It's a space-going vessel. It must be able to... Well, it's airtight. Know. It should be able to. Sp- yeah, well, it's airtight, space and water are different. Of the ship. Well, I, the I don't mean logistics built. as much as, like, just... It doesn't bother you that he, he just kind of throws, like, uh, ships into solid objects all the time? Uh, it doesn't bug me. If, if you want to see a spectacle, he's an ideas man. He's got stuff on tap. And that's what he does best. Like, showing you something that you have seen a thousand times, but now in a completely new light. Amen. I, hats off. I, I think submerging the Enterprise and having the, the, the Falcon plow through a few trees, beautiful, wonderful. Well, let's see some more. With the Millennium Falcon, it didn't bother me, but I think with the Enterprise, it kind of did, because logistically, to me at least, it doesn't make any sense. And there's a structural integrity field that's so strong that the ship isn't falling apart because it's inside a greater gravity field. I think you mean pressure, it looks yeah. amazing to me. No, but not just that, but just the way that the ship is structured, you know, with the nacelles up like that and the, and the dish. I mean, also, the, the other thing, now, now we're moving What's, on to Star Trek. Why would submerging it to put it under great stress? No, but I mean, that they've already established that it can be on a planet because it was, instead of being built in space, it was built on Earth. Mm. You're cool with, with it being able to handle gravity? Well, now that I think about it, at least in, in New Trek, it's, it's kind of okay because they built it on Earth, which means that it can kind of withstand the, the kind of the gravity force of a planet. So in retrospect, even with those gigantic engines, the nacelles on JJ's Enterprise well, are vast. Not just the nacelles. I mean, once again, it's a big thing because in New Trek, nothing in the timeline had really changed. Why did they build on Earth and not in space? There's no reason for them not to have done that. And the other problem is that there is no reason for JJ Abrams' Star Trek Enterprise ship to be at least three times larger than the original Enterprise. <laughs> <laughs> it makes no sense. 
because okay purist to answer your first question though it gave us a very cool no 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 definitely shot it did. of a young kirk like seeing this skeletal ship being constructed like he wouldn't have been able to see it if he you know montana farm boy yeah no there, there are reasons uh, he, he wouldn't have been it. in space you know there are definitely reasons for it but logically it makes no sense at least in the way that the original timeline went along why it was mm -hmm. built on earth but anyway not anyway anyway Pujo. <laughs> you guys saw all saw it in 3d did you not yes. Oh, yes how about that shot of the star destroyer coming into the theater do you know what i'm talking about that one yeah, shot yeah. when they show it and you're, and you're like oh that thing's about to pick my nose like that was beautiful. yeah that that was that was pretty intense that that was quite a a show off use of of 3d i uh, like that that's a... i also like the the blaster bolt being suspended in the air as well in the beginning of the yeah. that that, was it. That's something fresh. That was the first wake up call, yeah. It just jogged my memory, Kujo. When was the Star Destroyer picking your nose? Uh, I don't recall. It was in space, so I mean, I, I don't recall the. It's just like I in mean, the middle of the movie. Wasn't... There's like a shot where yeah. it's kind of coming towards you, and it's really coming towards you. Yeah, mm. I mean, it's it's erect. I mean, it's right in your face. So I mean, yeah. yeah. If you're sitting in the cinema and you're more at the back. You're on a higher angle, that shot tends to have a better... It works better. Oh, good call. Good call. I was yeah. in the back row, so hmm. I feel it. Yeah. I, I was always in the middle of the house. No. Well, I, well, how do you guys feel about seating in cinemas nowadays? Like, if you're there and you're not getting crowded, <laughs> oh. like, do you pick off to the side just to kind of keep a bubble around you? No, I just sit as far away from those fucking lights on the stairs as possible. Oh, okay. Okay. I, I tend to sit on the aisle unless it's IMAX or 3D where you kind of have to be central to get the... That's a good call. ...to not mess with the effects. Um, yeah, I, yeah I, I try mm. to stay away from people as well. I generally like to be central to, to get the sweet spots for the sound, personally, but... That makes sense. That's exciting. Let's talk more about yeah. Star Wars. <laughs> Can I mention something? I actually forgot about it earlier, and it's a low point. It's something that Steve actually tuned me into, and when I watched the movie the second time, I couldn't unsee it. So I'm going to share it with you guys. <sighs> Those fucking blasters. <laughs> they really do look uh, like Nerf guns. <laughs> the Stormtroopers' blasters look like Nerf guns. Because, let's face it, Disney's probably going to license that product if they haven't already. Yeah. And the the Resistance blasters look like uh, super soakers that have been painted silver. That, that's and my I couldn't second. I see it the other day at the toy shop when I saw a whole bunch of Nerf guns. That's and what brings me to my second point. But I'll, I'll springboard off of uh, Paul like a Cobra twin. Back in 77, they used repurposed, like, small yes. arms. They had, like, a German like heavy MG as like the big stormtrooper gun. And then the little ones were like, I think they were British uh, SMGs, but they were like guns, man. <laughs> so nowadays with our sort of toy laws in place, you can't have a toy gun that is jet black and shiny and looks like it's made of metal. So I think the white parts on the stormtrooper guns were actually an imperative mm -hmm from the merchandise department. Like, if we're going to sell this as a product, they cannot look like gun guns. Mm. Let's add a few splashes of white and maybe some red glowing lights. So, yeah, my initial like of those guns was, was then turned on its head when I started realizing the reason for it and thinking to myself, well, a, an entirely black gun would have looked cooler. 
and more like a gun. <laughs> anyway. anyway. <laughs> well, I think that's a yeah. huge point to bring up, though. Once again, if, if you're talking, like, the legitimacy of storytelling, there was no menace to the bad guys. Did you at least like the Stormtrooper uniform redesign, Kuja? No, of course Kuja? not, brother. I mean, it, <laughs> it looked like an iPhone, and you know that. I mean, like, <clears throat> there was no menace to anything, dude. Like, Kylo Ren was bratty, but was he evil? Uh, no, he was just a dude with, like, great hair. <laughs> the, the suspended laser bolt was nice. But again, the guns being two-tone, that felt toy-like, and you're like, oh, okay. This is the last time I'll criticize this flick to not bog down the proceedings. But I thought the Williams score was too damn careful. If you watch it again, it, it does have some, uh, you know, some feathery notes. But where was the menace? Oh, you know what? Let me let me do one more point. The cantina scene. Stephen alluded to it in, in in much much more elaborate words than I can find. But. That was the first scene in A New Hope where you're like, oh, I'm not ready for this film. Because they cut a dude's arm off and there's blood spilling out of it. And you're like, wait a second, am I watching sci-fi right now? Like that scene, the cantina scene lit the fuse. You had that jazz band from the 70s. People were getting down. <laughs> like, it was dangerous. With, like, ass heads. <laughs> oh, for real. And then you had Greedo in, like, high heels. I mean, that place was crazy, brother. So, I mean, like, if, if, if you're talking, like, the introduction of a watering hole, what was that travesty from Awoke? I mean, what was that? They introduce that one character, the Crimson Fuhrer, or whatever his name is, but they give no context of interest to him. Same with uh, everybody's favorite badass from Game of Thrones, uh, Gwendolyn. They, they show this shiny object, but they, they don't give you any reason to be intrigued by it. You never see her pull a trigger on innocent villagers, but you see her roll up at, in the aftermath. In fact, you never see her do anything than strike the same pose. <laughs> I found her performance, I mean, the only thing you've got to go off of when you do a masked performance is your physical theatricality. Anthony it. Daniels she did it, it does it what? No, she had one pose. Walking around with her gun. I'm okay with that. That is that pose. But we should have seen her do something horrible so her arc would seem more interesting. Well, we know she's perceptive. I mean, she, anyway, I'm know. done. I'm done. I've monopolized your time. Uh, I'm now going to give in to the fandom. <laughs> well, before we move on to expectations, I wanted to mention an interesting um, trivia. If you remember the flashback sequence when when Ray originally touches Luke's lightsaber. lightsaber. Oh, um, nice hesitation. <laughs> you hear several voices. Eh? They're almost kind of you can't quite hear what they're saying and the cool thing about that sequence is that actually those voices are in general archive footage and uncredited performances by Alec Guinness, Ewan McGregor and Frank Oz as Yoda which is kind of and cool. Liam Neeson I believe I think so although I didn't see that on the cast list on IMDB but uncredited uh -huh. were those three doing voices kind of like adding extra stuff there into that moment where, where she kind of connects with the force for the first time essentially. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was quite cool. And I believe they reworked recorded dialogue of uh, Alec Guinness yes. to sort of say say new things yes, uh, say that he didn't ever actually something say. Something he had never said before was Ray. So in there he actually mm. talks to her directly 
but what they did is they took him saying afraid from I'm not sure where I, I looked it wow. up. But, um, so they reworked it. They kind of cut that out. Ooh, don't be afraid. <laughs> yes, could have been, could even have been that. And Hugh McGregor. Hey, little one. Yeah, That's and Hugh McGregor. Yeah, it's kind of cool. I think I'd love to kind of listen to that more closely on like the DVD or something. Blu-ray, yeah, absolutely. But anyway, That's so Abrams flexing his strength right there, sound design. That flashback sequence is definitely uh, something that requires careful deconstruction. Mm. Yeah, yeah definitely. Oh, just like the the opening shot of it, which was that kind of like A-frame tunnel in Bespin. Did you feel that was pretty? Did rad. you feel any sort of way about the introduction of a flashback sequence to the Star Wars franchise? I found it certainly uh, preferable to uh, seeing a ghost apparition. Okay. Something bugs me about seeing Obi-Wan's sort of ghostly figure in Jedi. Mm-hmm. It, it never affected me before. Now I'm like, that's kind of cheesy. I would have preferred a, disem- a disembodied voice just kind of reaching out to Luke. He's like, yeah, he's actually sitting down on a tree trunk and having a good powwow about, oh, what I told you was true. From a certain point of view. Yeah, it's... Uh, I, I don't like Force It's right? silly. I, I I prefer the force speaking to you through through like a, a touchstone like that. Yeah, a medium, an object. Mm. Uh, so there was a great mm-hmm. oh our expectations uh, about where eight and nine go. Yeah. <laughs> Are we all in favor of the fact that Ben is indeed Han Solo and Leia's offspring? I mean, is that a given? It's well established. Like, yes, I very much believe that. I have no doubts there. All right. Since that's since that's a given, let's let's move on to more uh, more controversial origin. Ray's upbringing, Ray's lineage. Where's she from? Initially, before the films, I didn't want to think about it. But when watching the film and I and I got to understand her character and everything, I kind of wanted her to be a descendant of Obi Wan in a weird way. Like, I wanted her to kind of be related to Obi-Wan somehow. But if you think about it, it can't be possible because Obi-Wan's been a Jedi for such a long time. He can't, he, he never married or met a woman. Yeah, he was, he was pretty dogmatic about yeah, very much so. the rules. Yeah, he's, and he's a, he's a real stickler for rules. So that, that's kind of pushed me through. And then I thought, well, maybe, you know, it's immaculate conception like Anakin. And I thought, no, I don't think they're going to hit that note again. Or at least I hope they don't. And then she did something really interesting. She mentions the Jedi Temple. And I thought, hmm, why would she specifically mention that? And the second time when I watched it, I was like, yeah, she's either related to Luke directly, or she is related to somebody who was a guardian of the Jedi Temple, and Luke actually saved her, or something like that, and took her from that place. Because... She knows it. I mean, it's it, the Jedi Temple is not common knowledge. You know what I mean? It's not something that people are, just throw around, you know? And she's very in tune to kind of these, like, small little fun facts, you know, about, you know, like Han Solo and the Falcon and that kind of stuff. And to me, I just feel that she's she comes from, from the Jedi Temple somehow, that she's related to that. Or because of Luke, her mother is somebody who is linked to the Jedi Temple or something. Because obviously her mother can't be Mara Jade because there's no expanded universe. But that's how Cheers. I see it. Yeah, so I think either she's an orphan that Luke's adopted and trained. And when shit went down, he um, wiped her memory and dropped <laughs> her on Jakku. It's possible. 
and that guy that hands out the food rations, uh, you know, that pays in food rations and things like that, he's either the guy that's been watching her, he's the Uncle Owen of her life, and he's trying to, like, keep her down, or there's somebody else on Jakku that's been watching her and making sure that she's alive, that she stays alive. Who that is, I don't know, and it still links to Poe Dameron surviving that TIE fighter crash, or even Finn, for that matter. But, I mean, Poe Dameron gives us some very, very flaky story about how he got flung out, but I don't believe it. You don't think that Max von Sydow's character was the the Obi-Wan, the sort of, the watcher of Rey? That's possible, because... Um, is, is that the dude that gets 86 in the first in the first scene? Yes. Yeah. Bingo. Some have speculated that that's Kyle Katarn, but go ahead. It's very possible yeah. that, I mean, just in in cinema language, he looks a lot like Obi Wan. So that kind of association is almost uh, thrust upon you, in a weird way, you know. So that could also be. It but, could be, but. I've, yeah, it's probably not him because he, he wasn't always established on the planet, at least according to the Dorling Kindersley character encyclopedia for Force Awakens. He's more like a traveler. He's um, kind of connected. Oh, okay. I mean, he, he's a traveler and an adventurer, as it were. Um, exactly. so he wasn't always based there. Okay, well, there you go. Okay, well, that throws that theory out. <laughs> what about the theory that Rey is, in fact, a clone of Luke Skywalker? Hmm. Because when Luke gets his hand chopped off in Bespin, whoever found the lightsaber might have found his hand. <laughs> it is possible, but then does Kaminos exist? I'm pretty sure the clone technology is not exclusively Kaminoan. I think it well, is. Well, it's almost a history of clones. Because, yes, yeah, and it also yeah. it was an option, at least as far as Kylo Ren mentions. Like, he, you know, in the one scene he says to Hux, you really should have just gone with clones. And Hux was like, no, <laughs> my brainwashing techniques are so much more effective. <laughs> Bingo. Yeah, nice way to kind of pull in the prequels. They're not entirely dead to this new new sequel trilogy. Also, did anybody catch the Mandalorian banner outside uh, on Taco Bell? It, it <laughs> was revealed to me uh, in a blog or something. Uh, yeah. So I'm aware that there was an illusion, yeah. I actually, yeah, because I saw it in the film and I was like, hmm, that's Well, also, <laughs> if you freeze frame uh, the flashback of Kylo Ren with his uh, knights, you yeah, see uh, something of a uh, a rugged figure in the back center who could very well be Boba Fett. Oh, will you just quit it, no, man? Boba Fett's dead. He's in the, the, the Sarlacc being digested for a thousand years. Uh, until I see the scrap metal, I, I will believe. <laughs> well, that's wishful fanboy well, thinking right there. As far there. as I know, Boba Fett is the last living Mandalorian. You know he's going to make an appearance if they have any sense of intelligence at all. <laughs> uh, I'll take you up on that. They released an action figure of him, and this is going to add to some of the speculation. All of the figures that have been released on our pegs, We've had Ray, obviously. We have Kylo. We have Finn. We have versions of Finn, and then we have two of the Junkers from Jakku, whose names just escape me, but they're actually quite cool-looking figures. We've got a lot of characters from Force Awakens, and we've got Boba Fett, and yeah, obviously Boba Fett because you know he sells, and Boba Fett is cool. But it's also kind of interesting, like why all of a sudden just throw Boba Fett? I mean, 
how many episode one, two, and three generation Star Wars fans really know who Boba Fett is? You know? So, like, well, well anybody with a helmet, Jango you Fett. just put the helmet on a new person. So, I mean, it, it could work. It could work. We'll see. But I just think that that marketing was done for two reasons. A, because the Star Wars toy collecting community goes nuts over Boba Fett figures because there aren't that many. And secondly, because I think they're trying to hint. I mean, they could have used any other character other than Boba Fett. Um, there are a few Boba Fett figures out there. Yeah, but oh, there trust. Is. Yes, there is. That's my contribution to the uh, what could happen in the future. Not going to happen. Oh. Sorry, Spe- buddy. Spe- You've hitched your wagon. Speculation. Is, uh, I'll, I'll take you up on a few dollars on that score. And it'll really hurt me Might bad because the exchange the rate is yeah. hitting 18 rand to the dollar. Ridiculous. How do you guys feel about it actually being Kylo Ren's story? Kind of an inversion of the hero's journey that he's on his way back to accepting the life. Because- the overt ways that they attempt to tell you, like, the First Order's evil. It is a fairly balanced... You're invested in, in several different sides of the conflict, I think. The reason I mention is because there are some Star Wars fans. I've read some stuff and watched some stuff on YouTube channels where some guys feel that 4, 5, and 6 is actually Darth Vader's story. It's actually a story of redemption for Darth Vader. And it's using Luke to tell that story. Not so much a story about Luke becoming a Jedi. But anyway, that's not my theory. I'm just putting out what do we think of it maybe being Kylo Ren's film, that Kylo Ren's actually secretly the star of this whole show, you know? And and do you guys think that that has any legs for episode eight and nine? There's no doubt about it that he is the primary antagonist. Uh, I don't know about that, brother. What? You would put Snoke above him? I don't know who Snoke is. That That's a that's a spook to me. Uh, I think... Snoke, doggy I think... <laughs> Nice. Uh, that's topical. What's the character that gets spoken about in this episode three by Palpatine? Darth Plagueis. Plagueis. Um, Darth Plagueis. Who, who okay. could cheat death? Um, who could cheat death? But he was killed by his apprentice. And it's like rather heavily hinted that that is Palpatine. Uh, but what if Plagueis figured out how to cheat death? Well, that would be a nice. He's back. That would be a- Pulling the strings for sure. Uh, I mean, it could be. I don't. I don't think Kylo Ren's not interesting enough to be a villain to me. The the one scene that's supposed to carry weight, where uh, and Rob, I I I'm gonna call upon your knowledge because you've seen it the most times. They don't show the lightsaber piercing Han Solo, do they? It's off screen, and then essentially you see the blade coming off screen through his back. Is that yes, fair? I think that's true. Yeah, because he's kind of going into the close-up of them holding it. He pushes it towards Han Solo, and the camera okay. is yeah, it's a little high, so you don't actually see it going into him. It's almost so like that, yeah, you could argue uh, that it's next to him. In one respect, that's Disney saying we don't want you to see death. Uh, uh, in, in another respect, it, you're trying to say that like this character's soft. Like whatever you make of him, this guy's not like the real. I can see his arc swinging a little bit, but we'll see. Maybe our dapper PC-friendly heroes get to save Kylo from Big Bad Snoke. I don't know. I mean, it's it could be splashy. I mean, Star Wars has a history of trying to, uh, you know, save the villains at the end, which, I mean, that's just part of humanity that's just operating at a high level. But 
I mean, I, I think that you could just broad stroke it and say that this is the inverted tale of uh, the Kenobi uh, bloodline getting revenge on the Skywalker bloodline. You could go that direction if you wanted. The Kenobi bloodline getting revenge on the Skywalker bloodline? So so you're saying Rey is the Kenobi offspring? Yeah, I think that's why Luke Skywalker, who is either meditating or, or maybe you know smoking a death stick out on the cliff, when he sees Ray, he just like he's like mind blown because he's like I've not felt this presence for quite some time. And he's probably looking at uh, a Kenobi. That is wow. He does have a British accent. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> and obviously, Mark Hamill, Luke Skywalker, now has holds the crown for the best beard in the uh, franchise, taking it taking it from <laughs> Kenobi. So there's that. He did cut cut a pretty good figure, man, as the crazy old wizard. Hamill can act, dude. You forget, that guy can act. I don't doubt it, man. He's terrific. But yeah, as far as an actor's concerned, I think he's hugely underrated, in fact. I mean, if if people thought, like, Star Wars was his one-trick pony, they're wrong. I'm pretty sure he could have done whatever he wanted, but, like... He's got a huge asking price. Actually. Well, and he shows respect. To well, that's that pretty pretty prohibitive. Well, one... I, I don't know about Cockknocker, but he does show respect to the character. <laughs> one thing about him, though, because I, I watched him very recently on the Star Wars celebration, uh, just answering some questions, and then it, I went down the rabbit hole of uh, Mark Hamill interviews. As a kid, I mean, when he talks about his childhood, like what he used to do as a kid, he reminds me of us. You know, he's talking about how he used to, like, run around with these brothers and they were always playing, like, they were, like, pretending they were James Bond and they were, like, you know, shooting at each other and making, like, you know, gun sounds and accents and all kinds of stuff and then playing with toys and doing the exact same thing. And, I mean, is that not what we do? That made him very, like, endearing to me because I went, hey, he's just such a product of being creative. He's very relatable yeah. to, to the fans because he's one exactly. of us. Agreed. And, and Agreed. I, I've actually found that as a Star Wars fan, I've grown to really like Luke over the years. You know, coming from hanging out in comic shops when I was really young uh, or having a job at one and everybody was all like, Luke's a whiny bitch. And, and, and having that, you know, that's well, okay. That's not without merits. In episode four, that's kind of his function. Up until when he blows up the Death yeah. Star, all he has done is whine. Not exactly. But I mean, how, that, like, to be fair, a lot of us would probably be in a similar position. You know, and in in some kind of way, it's just it shows self doubt. <laughs> but it's wonderful. It's a very, it's a very humanizing exactly. thing. Gross. Whereas exactly. Ray Ray is 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 uh, like approaching godliness in her acumen and natural ability with everything. So she is not relatable exactly. and quite precious as well about I think about the Holy Trilogy. Like the the actress's approach is very reverent. Yeah. As it should be, she, you know, she's, she's, she should be playing things sincerely. Yeah. But like, I don't know, there wasn't a, a sort of a feisty disenfranchisement with, with the movie. It was always like, ooh, this is, this is, this is gospel handed down to us from a higher power. Yeah. <laughs> like, this is Star Wars. It's George Lucas, it's not baby. Like, the, yeah, book of, well, the book of Lucas. Exactly. She was she was very reverent and very diligent. I think they're sending it felt... quite a fall. I think. Oh really? Mm. That would be my speculation. Okay. Well, it's they made yeah. her so good. Everyone loves her because she's so good and she's so capable. But I think they're probably setting up for quite a big fall in the next movie. Lucas like, is known for 
I mean, some of the most epic plot twists. I mean, maybe is the Star Wars franchise, is that a calling card? Do you expect that, Rob? I think so, yes. And also, like, even just, like, little tidbits of information from, like, I think it's, what's the next director's name? Ryan Johnson? He said this one's going to be much darker, you know, kind of like Lucas said about um, oh, Revenge Christ. of the Sith. <laughs> it's going to be much darker. I love um, it when I say that, you're like, oh, what does that mean? There's going to be a darker score? It means we're sticking to the formula of the original trilogy. <laughs> That's all it means. You know, be completely outrageous. Here's, here's a dark horse pick for a prediction. They're in the middle of a galactic war, and all of a sudden, the Yuzon Bond fleet rolls up, and all of a sudden, they have to join sides and fight them. <laughs> Remember that? Nice. Oh, my God. Because that, that would be completely game-changing. Is it all of a sudden like we're fighting? Uh, oh nope, there's a there's something worse out there. But anyway, no. damn. Well, if Ray's being set up for a big fall, what form could that take? I don't know. It, it could be a typical thing. I mean, like she loses an arm or something. <laughs> but so you're not thinking, it, it, uh, yeah? What that she gets killed? No, I was I was actually about to say you're not thinking along the lines of Luke from Dark Empire how he sort of swings a bit. It could that... be that as well. I mean, because also, I mean, the way the film ends, it, the next film can't start at that exact moment. It has to be several years later, perhaps training and other things. At least that's what I think. <laughs> she don't need no fucking yeah. training. Star Wars timeline has always been real, real time. So, I mean, oh, like back in the day... No, really. no, no, no. Not, not real time on screen, but the oh, I mean, real time. time. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So that's like, true. I mean, there was about the three same. to four years between the first and the second, and then yeah. the same between, yeah, no, that's true. I mean, even now, this is essentially 30 years later. You guys cannot convince me that there are three years that transpire between Empire and Jedi. Well, that's what I've been told. I mean, obviously, I've been lied to a few times in my life, but that's what I... That was the longest trip to Tatooine ever. Did Lando and, and Chewie take the long way around? What the hell gives... No, well, they, they were to, set they had to work in snake-like, brother. They had to serpentine. Yeah, not just that, but I mean, they yeah, they left. But I mean, by the time we see them again, they're set up. At least Lando inside mm. Jabba's palace. I mean, he's infiltrated the you know his guard. He's got no. I, I never read shadows. I never read shadows of the empire. I haven't either, but I mean, it's kind that's of that's the interim. He didn't miss anything. <laughs> well, I know. Time. Obviously, it's a filler story. It's like we know how this is gonna end. They're gonna try and get Han back, but they're gonna fail. Stories, I do. I can't help it. <laughs> but they they just don't alter the baseline at all. It's like Saturday morning cartoons. No, but at the same time, you get to see more adventures with your, you know, you get a deeper understanding of the characters through that are of no consequence. Here's something that bothered me about uh, the Awakens is. Uh, didn't uh, Disney divorce the uh, expanded universe like hours before they dropped the new movie? So like as a as a fan, you're like, what? Like you almost feel sick to your stomach. It was a departure that that was part of the terms of of the new direction that that Star Wars was taking. So the divorce the, the divorcing of the EU I think happened at the beginning of the year. I beginning think of when they announced that they're doing the new films, and then they, yeah, at the beginning of last year, I think yeah, no, you're right. Beginning of last year, they essentially went. Did you? We want to go get, in our own direction. Did you feel anything? Because they said like it was ambiguous, like like some stuff they might use, some stuff they might not. When you realized that there was no Thrawn chapter, did did that make you feel any kind of way? 
Mm. I think it was upsetting because, I mean, Thrawn is a really cool character and that entire story. I mean, there's a lot of really cool stories. Okay. I'm uh, just curious. It, it we, definitely we, obviously, this is a different conversation, but yeah. <laughs> but I, I also understand why Disney did it. They want to be able to tell new stories and make a lot of money from this by showing well, you this I is what I know why they did happened. it too, brother. I mean, dude, like, the expanded universe was my reality, brother. Like, my, my family life was rocky. And I, I disappeared into Star Wars through chapters of my life. So, I mean, like, uh, again, that's not fair to Disney. But, like, they have to understand that Star Wars is is really important to people. And, and, I mean, I'm not trying to say that it should be. But, like, Star Wars are your first toys, essentially. And when you're a kid, if life isn't right, you start grafting yourself to that mythology, you know, you, you, you pick archetype characters that you identify with. Uh, and it was just rough. Like, I, I felt sick for like a week when I realized that a lot of the stuff that I invested myself in when, when life wasn't right, like, it hurt. It's hard to explain that. But do you know what I'm saying? No, I get what you're saying. But I mean, like, for me personally, I've completely divorced myself from episodes one, two, and three. They just don't suit... As have I. As have I. They don't suit me. So... What what I'm trying to say to you is is like with the expanded universe, that's yours, dude. Nobody can take that from you. And no, I, I get that. I get that. Everybody can pick and choose. And it's your right to revile the new fans, you know, to hate them. <laughs> you know? Well, like, I, I don't you know, hate for liking them, a shitty version of, of something you love, you know? But <laughs> No, I don't I'm, feel I'm any joking. rancor, pun intended. It's just a, a, acknowledging a new age, I suppose. Yeah. We and are being reminded old. that nothing yeah. is is revered when it comes to storytelling. True. No, I, I am old. I like it. I think we're going to wrap things up, actually, gents. Uh, it's a goodly long podcast for me to chop it up. Right. Uh, it did. But I, I, I'm going to say that the thing that makes me hungry to see Episode 8 more than anything else has nothing to do with any of the new characters or worlds or concepts that we've been introduced to. You just to. want to see Luke kick ass. I just want to see Luke. I want to see Luke so badly. That was a very, very well-used ploy. Yes, sir. To have him tease his presence right at the end, looking so damn cool. Where have you been all my life, Luke Skywalker? Han's dead. You're my new hero. Maybe you always were, but now it's only you, friend. So come on back and kick some oh, ass. Luke is great. He's our working class hero, man. He's a blonde surfer boy who took down an empire. Boom. <laughs> Amen. G.I. Joburg episode 62, though you wouldn't have guessed, because we have not mentioned G.I. Joes not once in this episode. We have run out of time. Of course, there is a link between G.I. Joe and Star Wars. It is irrefutable that G.I. Joe's scale and interactivity with vehicles was a direct uh, influence from Star Wars. Don't tell me I can't put Firefly in a chicken walker. <laughs> 
you can do as you please, and he even like matches the color scheme down the wire. But that is a conversation for another time, I'm afraid, because we are out of time. This has been the G.I. Joburg Star Wars Special Edition. I can't believe I say that because I can't stand the Special Edition. <laughs> but it has been the Expanded Universe episode of G.I. Joburg. My name is uh, Fluke <laughs> Steve Killer, or just Steve. And I'm still wanting to know where Luke Skywalker's lightsaber was found, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> Robert enjoying this discussion. And I am uh, the embodiment of Jar Jar Binks. Uh, and I, I roll with the West Coast Cabal. That's an illusion. You know what I am. <laughs> <laughs> and just like a very unmemorable uh, fin quip, we're just going to disappear on you. <laughs> Nicely done. <laughs> Into obscurity and beyond. What? Goodbye, G.I. Joe Burgers. Yeah.